Podcast. I'm Patrick Rapol. I am Jim Lazkowski, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> what? I'm just very excited. Yeah, yeah. Because so of... excited that you started to say your last name in slow motion. Did I? Yeah. I, I am Jim Lazkowski. <laughs> like you're powering down. That was exciting. Uh, that was. Uh, yeah, yeah. I'm now. I'm excited. It could be the radio host in me that sure. I always wanted to be back in the day. Yeah. I was trained a certain way at one point to deliver oh. my name a certain way. Actually, no, they said, you got to have a radio name. So I went with James Eric. <laughs> really? Yeah. Is that I, where James Eric came from? Nah, it's, I guess. I mean, it wasn't really anything in particular. It's just my first and my middle name, you know? Anyway, well, we do have a guest. <laughs> yeah. We don't want to ignore that. Welcome to the welcome to the name talk. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is podcast. actually the Director's Club podcast, right? Am I yeah. correct? No, that's right. And we have a magnificent guest with magnificent. us. Magnificent. Yeah, we got to come up with new adjectives. Like the plumage of a peacock fan opening in the in the midday sun. Its, it's <laughs> magnificence is just dripping off uh, of the ozone. Yeah, exactly. Whoa. <laughs> we, <laughs> in honor of Thanksgiving, we have a real live turkey here to talk to us about Steven Soderbergh. Yes, we do. And his name is Andrew James, and uh, he's our second returning guest. Welcome back, Andrew. Yeah. Well, uh, thank you. I'm happy to be back. I'm excited. Yeah. You may be, remember well. Andrew. Uh, I believe it was the Almodovar episode. Yes, it was. Yeah, correct. Whoa. <laughs> correct. It was the Almodovar episode. Yes, it was. Yeah. And <laughs> this is one of our weirdest intros. That's fine. Is that um, coming from my end? I think it could be. Um, I don't think it's... Yeah, it's, we'll see. We'll hope for the best. I okay. mean, it's not. We usually uh, do pause my, later in, in, in the show if oh, we need to. Oh, yeah, let me switch mics. Hang on. Okay. So, Patrick, how you doing? I'm doing great. I think we're going to edit this part out. We could. We could, or we could just talk. You know, yeah. You know, um, like uh, Thanksgiving was just around the corner. Yeah. You know, got got a little stuffing and yeah. pumpkin pie. What's your favorite uh, food? side dish? What's your favorite side dish? Oh my god, Jim! Can I, do I just can I just be boring and say I love mashed potatoes? You 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 can. That is boring. I think stuffing is far superior. You get some chives oh. in there. True, get a little bit I of onion. Amazing stuffing this yeah. year. It yeah, yeah. So yeah, I like it when throwing a little bit of cranberry sauce in there. You put the cranberry sauce in that. We're we're I totally going to edit all this out. There's <laughs> no way we're keeping I think this people in. Would find, <laughs> I, I think people would I, find it really amusing to hear us. <laughs> Fumble and folly. <laughs> you know what? The I director's got the technical issues fixed on my end, so we're good. Awesome. Yeah. Hey, everybody. Guess what? We're talking Steven Soderbergh and not Thanksgiving. That's right. Yeah. Oh. We'll save yeah. it. I'm we'll... sorry. Yeah. We'll save the it. Eli Roth episode we might be later on. Nice. But... Yeah, we'll save it for the bonus episode. Uh-huh. So, yeah. Um, part one of two for um, Soderbergh because he's. Got such an extensive filmography, and though I, we don't know when part two is coming. No, 
Okay. I mean, next year if he do, he does have two movies coming out, so maybe mm-hmm. expect a, a return at some yeah. point. But we're definitely uh, thrilled to talk about his debut film, Sex Lies and Videotape, as That's well right. as uh, Traffic. Yeah. From the year two thousand. Exactly. Sorry, stole it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um. We, well, we we need to mention one quick thing, a uh, little in-house business regarding um, a nice little thing I thought up here for the for the website for the listeners. Mm-hmm. Um, you can go to directorsclubpodcast.com oh, to real, vote. Yeah. I'm, no, go ahead. Go ahead. I'll mention it afterwards. Yeah, you can, I'll, you I'll can, do it afterwards. You can click here to cast your vote on which director we're going to cover in March. Um, originally, for some strange reason, why did we have Paul Haggis on the list? I, I don't know. I don't know why either. Um, I, 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 it's funny. Neither of us will admit that we chose Paul Haggis. Um, yeah. So we're just going to pretend that that never happened. So we we decided to let the listeners vote um, between Richard Kelly, Bobcat Goldthwait, Catherine Bigelow, Joe Berlinger, James Whale, Buster Keaton, Roman Polanski, or Peter Yates. And to do that, just go to the website. Uh, there's a link there, either in the sidebar or at the top of the, of the page. And uh, just uh, let us know. We're going to give it another couple weeks, probably till the next episode, to decide. Um, right now, it's kind of looking like Catherine Bigelow, but... Oh, and I want to. I, what I wanted to say was I want to thank everybody because uh, last last week before we opened our show, we asked um, people if you wanted to, you could leave us a rating or a review on iTunes, and you guys really came out for us. We got a bunch more reviews and ratings, and yeah, we got a all, few doozies. We got some nice ones there. Very positive, and uh, it was very very flattering. So thank you very much for all that. And if you haven't done that yet, please you know feel free to continue to do so. It helps us out. It helps us get new listeners. It doesn't cost you anything. So there you go. Yeah, thank you, everybody. That was really mm-hmm. cool to see. Um, on that note, I think we might just mosey right along to uh, what we watched this week. What movies did we? Did we? What movies did we? Did we? What movies did we? Watch this the guests to go first these That's days right. so why don't we go ahead and uh, andrew if you're all set to pick up on something uh let us know what you've been what you saw uh sure um i actually yesterday i went to the local cinema and caught my week with Marilyn. um so this is like kind of a i, I wouldn't go so far as to say it's a biopic because it's not like your traditional i was born i grew up I died. Um, it's just what the title suggests: a week with Marilyn. And that's the. Um, I think. I think those are the best kind of biopics where it's not just a series of greatest hits. Yeah, it's like a week in the life. Yeah. Yeah. So. Uh, and I, I tend to agree. I think that is a much more interesting approach, just because it's been done so many times the other way. That said, I don't know. I think Marilyn Monroe is such an interesting icon that I could have spent a little bit more time with her um, rather than just this one photo shoot or uh, not photo shoot, but on set of a movie being made. And it's just this one week. And um, the movie for me overall really pretty much fell flat. Um, Michelle Williams is radiant 
as Marilyn Monroe, like, like really good. And that might seem like the cliche thing to say, right? All these biopics, like it's Jamie Foxx is playing um, Ray Charles. Like he's amazing. But um, this felt to me more, but it really less is. like an imitation. It's, it's, it's more than just that. It's more than yeah, her because imitating. she's such an interesting character because she has two faces: the public face and then who she really was, Norma Jean, and yeah. um, and Michelle Williams does an excellent job of capturing both. I thought absolutely. Um, yeah. She brought a lot of pathos to the character, and it really uh, it goes to show that oh, it seems like with every year, every movie I see Michelle Williams, and she just gets better and better every time. She also had Mink's cutoff earlier this year, and she was completely uh subdued and you know that's a movie that's very minimalist in its approach and she brought a lot to that character even though there's no showiness to it at all there really isn't no marilyn monroe sort of moment of uh you know um going all out in in front of the camera or something like that you know Mm -hmm. i mean just like just none of that kind of uh she showed a lot of restraint in that movie as well as well she did in wendy and lucy too and yeah, yep. Um if you just want to go to watch you know Kenneth Branagh is also really good as uh Olivier too. It's kind of the role I think he was meant to play. He's been sort of he's basically been Olivier or you know aspired to be Olivier. Yeah, I was going to say he hasn't even been playing that role in real life for like the past <laughs> 20 years. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And, and you know what all the performances throughout the movie are pretty good. Yeah. Um just the story itself is kind of bland. Um, who is just, the, sorry, so it's hard to put all my fingers on the on exactly what buttons rub me the wrong way to mix metaphors but um <laughs> yeah i just i don't want to say i was bored but damn close if if marilyn monroe wasn't on screen doing something i wasn't very interested in the movie as a whole i agree it's it's more like a tv movie that really isn't that engaging i think it's 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 fun to watch at times, especially when Marilyn Monroe's on screen, but the, for the most part, it is pretty dry. Who is the... It's my week with Marilyn. Who's the my? Who's the protagonist, I guess, or the... The guy's name is Colin Clark, I think, and he sort of became uh, a documentarian and author, mm-hmm. um, and he was in the movie at, like, so this is based on his diary. Like He wrote what happened to him during this week, and he was the third assistant director um, of this movie being made in the movie. And basically he was a nobody. He was the coffee getter, a gopher guy. Right. And uh, through just circumstance ended up becoming Marilyn's favorite and always being requested by her to sort of take care of her and show her around and just be a pal. And is that relationship at all compelling or is it just the performance of uh, Michelle Williams? I no, I don't think it's that compelling at all. It's no, it, kind it, of it's, it's like an interesting idea. It just it I don't know. An hour and a half wasn't enough to make that relationship blossom enough, I don't think. And which is which was exactly what, what it is. That's I mean that's kind of the point is that she has all these really on the surface relationships. And they mention that like she does this all the time. She'll just get some young guy and then she'll break his heart after after some time, and the implication is that maybe there's more to this relationship than just that. But I guess you'd have to see the movie and make up your own mind on that, right? Yeah, that's not really cl- clear if anything did happen other, you know, 
other than just becoming really close or not. But yeah, it was it was interesting. I'm I don't know. Has there been a, a Marilyn Monroe movie um, that sort of documents her relationship with Arthur Miller? Which I, I find that that uh, that relationship to be kind of interesting. I don't know. I mean, especially once you, you and he's barely in the movie, but at the same time, um, he tends to bring out the worst in her in terms of insecurities and and stuff. Mm-hmm. And that, but that's his, her, his intelligence and sort of his talent is what drew her to him. And you know, you sort of learn a little bit about her history with with her own family, but at the same time, it's it's nothing, you know, that, that we don't know about Marilyn Monroe before, you know, like most of it, you do see, you know, her dealing with her struggles with pills and everything like that. It's kind of exactly what you'd expect, but at the same time, just watching her performance is really, you know, the highlight for sure. It's nothing special overall. Yeah. That's, that's kind of the thing about this movie is if nothing else, it did actually get me much more interested in Marilyn Monroe. The first time. Yeah. Like I know the legend and all the that stuff and the conspiracy or whatever the the shadows of, of, of surrounding her death and whatever. Um but it it occurred to me and maybe I shouldn't admit this publicly, I don't think I've ever seen a Marilyn Monroe film. You've seen I've some like it seen, hot, right? Like, seen what? Some like it hot? Nope. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So, seven year itch, uh Diamonds are girls' best friend, isn't that one of them? I mean, like, I, none of them. I mean, I think we'll be actually be talking. We might, you know, we might mention Ocean's Eleven a little later. But if you want to just talk about pure effective movie star, that's what she had, where she's just so watchable, um, but she's not an actress at all. Like, but yeah. it's they bring that up in the movie. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, that's Olivier really, you know, has a lot of uh, issues with her and her acting quite a bit. Yeah. They, I mean, they 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 come to blows quite quite often on set. You know, and watching that's entertaining. What do, you, what do you remember? What the movie is that they're on set of? Uh, the Prince, the, the Sleeping Prince, the uh, yeah, I th- <laughs> um, the, the Prince, prince never sleep. The Prince and the Showgirl is what the movie turned out to be. Okay, I don't think I'm familiar with that. Directed by Laurence Olivier. Be interesting to see it now that I've seen the movie. No, I mean, so. I mean, I, I mean, obviously, I think the reason to see some like it hot and Seven Year Itch are for because Billy Wilder is so good and he makes such interesting, you know, dark kind of comedies. I haven't uh, seen Seven Year Itch and I need to. Um that's it's it's not it's it's one of those movies where its cultural sort of notoriety is probably bigger than its actual like quality. But it's it's worth seeing. Like I think all Billy Wilder movies are worth seeing. Um, yeah. No, but Definitely. she's, you know, she's very good and you know she uh, at being at doing what she does right, right. so yeah you maybe should, the same so. could be saying about another icon of that time james dean who was like only in what three movies but he had he this was an persona. actor though i guess i mean he was like he, he was an actor i mean he's only in three movies so i think the james dean isn't the james dean james dean story more just that it was just cut down way in his prime probably but probably. I mean, yeah, that's, that's a TV movie I've I always always wanted to see too. I know James Franco portrayed James Dean, and I've been meaning to watch it because I'm very curious. He certainly looks the part. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I'm not I'm not too hot on that James Franco. No, I don't think he's bad at all, um, and I think he's incredible in Pineapple Express. But 127 Hours, he's pretty good too. 
And mm. I feel that movie is very distracting from the performances. Yeah. <laughs> that that movie's so restless. Um I mean he, he worked you know, on me. I think I think James Franco's good in that. I'm not saying he isn't. I'm just saying that's I don't think that's James Franco's movie. I think that's uh Danny, Danny Boyle's, Boyle's movie. movie. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's uh, move right along here. Yeah. It'll get interesting. Yeah, since, yeah. Um, Both me and Jim have movies to talk about that we were shocked that the other didn't like it as much as we did. Um, I think I want to start because uh, recently in theaters I saw Martha, Marcy, May, Marlene, which is a mouthful. And it's also an incredible movie um, about Emily Olsen, um, one of the Olsen twins' sister. Elizabeth Olsen. Elizabeth Olsen. Emily Olsen's someone else, isn't she? There's a uh, there's like an Emily maybe. Olsen. There's an Emma so. Olsen. There's an Emma There's Roberts. definitely an there's an Enid Olsen. <laughs> there's Ed Ed Olsen. He's their uncle. I don't know. Um no. Elizabeth Olsen um plays the lead uh and plays all of the titled characters <laughs> pretty yeah. much. Um and uh it's about uh, her character sort of escaping a cult in the woods and um, staying with her sort of bourgeois sister and her sister's husband, and and it kind of you know has an interesting way of using match cuts to go back and forth in chronology, where you see the uh, you know her time spent in the cult, and then you see her sort of shell shocked and ha- you know exhibiting post traumatic stress at her uh, sister's house. But Jim, this movie, and I think it's an incredibly affecting and. I mean, I we I think we talked about this. I definitely mentioned this on the John Carpenter episode, and I probably mentioned it other times as well. But like for me, the scariest kind of movies uh, aren't necessarily the ones that are you know have monsters or gore or even you know ghosts or tension. Like for me, the scariest thing is just sort of an existential terror. You know, like I see Texas Chainsaw Massacre and it freaks me out while I'm watching it. But first time I saw apocalypse now i had like a week-long crisis (laughs) where i was just like in a total darkness uh you know and i think this is a literal story of existential terror because it's a it's a girl who's been programmed by a cult and it's her realizing that programming is shoddy and it's her going to her sister who you know you sort of learn about their childhood and the way they talk about their mother and her sister's not equipped at all to handle which um, was annoying for me. I the think. post-traumatic stress that she's dealing with. Well, that, what's interesting to me is just, I'm going to go ahead and say you're going to talk about Melancholia later. It's pretty much the same movie. <laughs> like well, they're both about they're both about sisters. Not stylistically. I mean, but I'm just saying thematically, they're both about two main character, you know, sisters, and and about how just the the dynamics between them are. Yeah, and how they can't, and how one has, it's just sort of realizing you have really bad wiring and you can't do anything about it. And everything you do concerning, you know, being so fucked up in the head is hurting everyone around you and you don't know how to not hurt people. Um, But, like, but the whole movie is literally an existential crisis where she has two identities. And one is you find out sort of she had a horrible childhood with a, sort of unforgiving and distant mother and with and now it, all of her family is the sister who doesn't know who she is and the sister who is too caught up in her own life to really address the problem is probably too afraid um and not emotionally able to address the problem who's trying to have a kid and probably is freaking out about the idea of becoming her own mother and then there's the life with with this fucking cult where uh I mean I definitely don't want to spoil anything because there are there are places where it goes that I did not expect it to go. Um, but 
where you just it, the darker it goes darker and darker and it's just more and more fucked up and she's caught between two identities that are of no no use to her um and the whole movie what's so great about Elizabeth Olsen's performance she's just like opaque like she's not Martha like Martha mm-hmm. is her real name and then Marcy May is her is the name that was sort of she was christened as yeah and then Marlene is a name she was rechristened as at the cult and she's she's none of them she is she's completely without identity and she has no way of even bringing herself to explain what she's going through hmm. um and it's so fucking captivating and the way it's laid out where you see the cause and effects um like just everything is spellbinding i think it's i mean i have i haven't seen all the movies of 2011 obviously and i haven't even seen a lot of the big you know critically acclaimed films but it i think it's definitely the best movie i've seen um this year ooh yeah but i'm uh i want to talk to you Jim, it's, it's about fun, your problems fun, with it it's it's funny cuz uh the more i hear people rave about it the more i think that uh, there's just a disconnect with me in this movie that i can't even quite you, understand I, I mean, more you frequently will always gravitate towards movies that deal with the brain and you know, you love Lost Highway because it's just stress. You love illness. Lost. You love Lost Highway because it's disassociative. Yeah, I guess identity it's, disorder, and it's it's weird because uh, I, I I acknowledge all of that, and I I certainly respond to your passion for the film, and it makes me definitely want to rewatch it, which I will. Um, as I was watching it, there were just the one thing I'm kind of with. Uh, Ebert mentioned this in his review about how the structurally I'm not I'm kind of done with telling the story at the end and then sort of going back and forth in uh, narratively it's just something I'm not into as much over time. But that's not a that's not just stylist that's literally what she's experiencing. Mm-hmm. Like it's literally someone who the past is invading the present. It's not it's essential to the way the story is told. If it was told strictly chronologically it would be a fucking mess. There'd be no way to do it that way. It's not just a like a twenty-one grams or a babble kind of thing where it's all okay, chopped well, up. Yeah, I mean that's kind of what I was in in that moment. I was thinking it was sort of that yeah. approach to it. Um, I, I realize that you know she doesn't have a sense of family and she's looking for that. I kind of with the cult. I uh, with the exception of John Hawks, I wasn't didn't get much from the other characters within the family. Like I. I didn't, you know, respond to like I definitely like the scene a lot where they're in the woods and that was really effective. But for the most part, I felt kind of detached from the whole experience of watching this movie. And uh, the end, I thought was kind of a cheat. Um, I'm why? Well, I, 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 I know we can't, we, can't give spoil it, we can't spoil it. Can't give it away, but I'm kind of done with abrupt it's bullshit. Uh, Just say it. It's bullshit. It isn't. It I isn't was, at all. I was so pissed. It's not uh, bullshit. Well. I, 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 I think it's obvious. Abrupt. I think just the, what it's trying to say is pretty obvious. Like, she can never outrun her past, you know? That no, that's not... Of... I don't think that's what it's trying to say. Well, do you think it's literally what's happening? Yeah. Okay. So, why does it have to end on that note, specifically? I mean, I know, again, we can't really... Because everything about the movie is about ambiguity and about not knowing what's happening and not being able to process it. And it leaves you on that same lingering note. And that's all you need to see. Um, and again, I don't want to spoil anything, and I apologize because I'd love to hear why you think it's bullshit, Andrew. But uh, our two-year kind of spoiler policy—if we can tiptoe yeah, around yeah, what actually happens—but I mean, melancholia won't be a problem because 
So, you know um, how it Structurally, is. the movie makes a point of spoiling how the movie will end in the first five minutes. So. Yeah. I think it's in the trailer, too, even. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, just quickly with Martha, Martha Marcy May Marlene. First of all, awesome title. I hated it before <laughs> I saw the movie, but now that I've seen the movie, I love the title. Yeah. I think it's great. Um, but I love it uh, until I have to tell someone about the movie. <laughs> exactly. and they Because and I know halfway just through the title, they're like, there's no fucking way I'm going to see this. <laughs> like, they have the same response you did. And in some ways, like I, I kind of agree with Jim. I, the There's some things you just have to overlook to really I really enjoyed the movie. I did like it overall, but there are things I not holes exactly, but just kind of stuff that I didn't buy completely. Uh the whole sister thing, it took a while for them to finally I don't know, just the way they deal with her is so not believable. Like you've got to realize something is wrong here, people, and they never do anything. They just call her stupid and that she needs to shape up and like Really, you're not going to pry a little bit more. Obviously, something that frustrated really me. Well, that's why. Well, that's what the. I mean, the climax of the movie is her prying. Yes. Um, finally. Yeah, finally, and I and but if you know, I kind of overlook that. Um, and I also agree with Jim. I get that the the structure of the movie is um, things are are sort of being revealed to us as they're coming. Uh, different stimuli are creating these memories in her head, and her struggling with the way she was programmed and now sort of being unprogrammed. But I also agree. I'm sick of the, here's what's happening now. Let's go back and look at what's happened similarly two months ago and then come back to now. Like that, that structure is just kind of old hat and it, it didn't feel very inspired. I, I, I guess I don't care if it's old hat, if it's essential to the movie. And okay. I feel it's essential in this case. Yeah. Um, I, I get what, I get what you're saying. Um, I'm certainly no, like I mentioned, I'm certainly no fan of the sort of uh, what's the director's name? He did 21 Grams and Batman. In your too. Yeah, I'm certainly no fan of you know films like that. And um, in fact, I was just recently talking on Facebook some of my friends about why Pulp Fiction is one of the few films that like it is essential that it is told in a kind of jumbled order and the way it's told, why it's so brilliant, you know. But yeah, but I think in this case. You know, it's sort of like Memento would not work at all if it was – it's not a gimmick. Like it is literally the only way Memento works and the only – and it, it's not only just thematically but just I practically know, speaking, it has to be told that way. I know it's reflecting Martha's perception or her confusion about what reality is. I, it, you know, and obviously that very unsettling uh, development towards the end is, you know, meant to – you know, uh, make you question whether if it's really happening or not. But you take it, you took it as it was definitely happening. It wasn't just necessarily taking place in her mind or it wasn't, uh, you know. Well, the, the question maybe, and this is, I'm saying spoiler free, is yeah. what is happening? You don't really know. It's kind of ambiguous, like, yeah. like Patrick yeah. said. I, I, th- I mean, I mean, normally, I'm all for that. Just based on other parts of the movie, but maybe not. Yeah, maybe mm-hmm. it's nothing. It may know? be nothing. That's correct. Um, and normally, I'm all for that ambiguity. I just think the way, like, and I and I think just, I think the tragedy of uh, of just that final climax where they finally, because again, they do mention repeatedly 
that about their mother, you know, and that and it's like there's how her sister is just not a caring person, you know, and and you get a you get a glimpse of that not only through that conversation, but um, kind of what you hear about the backstory of all the other people who come to the cult. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you don't arrive at a cult because you're well adjusted, you know, they they prey sure. on people who are. Vulnerable. So I and I feel like that is enough context to uh, and I understand what you're saying about the sister. He, she's definitely not acting like a normal person, and there's no reason to believe that. I mean, then the movie gives you no reason to believe that her husband. You know, I I mean, they give you reason to doubt that your her sister would question what's wrong, but there is no reason that the husband wouldn't go take the sister aside and go, "Hey, no, this your sister's in serious trouble." Mm-hmm. Um, and I understand that. And it, but I just think the effect of that again, and maybe it's just the fact that that sort of existential terror is for me the scariest possible thing you can have in a movie, and the fact that they pulled it off in the movie in this way that it it's almost like a Polanski movie where it feels like the entire world's against her, but they did it in a realistic setting, and just John Hawks' incredible performance in that scene where he's playing her that song, which is. It's a great, great moment, definitely. That's everything you need to know about. Like, it's amazing how at the same time he is. And John Hawks' casting just in his face is so great. Uh, and, and but because I mean, he's at the same time attractive and repulsive, and um, mm-hmm. and that and that moment is that. And I mean that song he sings the same way where you're like, oh my god, what's happening? But at the same time, it's a beautiful song, and you see yeah. why people are. Being I love learning. the I love those moments with the cult, the little softer, quieter and, moments. That, I mean, like, I don't think the characters in the cult have personalities because I think. They're okay. brainwashed. No, you know. So, yeah. I, but I understand that being. I understand that while that may be true, that could be a problem for you know. Maybe for I being just wanted invested. everybody to be as good as John Hawks. You know, I mean, I'm not saying I, that's, yeah. that's essential for the movie. I, but. And I understand it not working. You know, not being invested because of the those so many ciphers and that. But I think that more than those characters, it's just about providing context, and that's. I don't sure. Know. I'd really like for you to see it again because I know when I went in, I thought it was going to be about a cult. And That's I, what I thought, and I—I uh, I mean, I mean, once you see Meeks cut off too, the way I'm sort of uh, um, criticizing the ending will be kind of debunked. I, I feel like you'll see that and like, wait a minute, how can you, uh, you know, have that same criticism? Because I, I think they're very similar endings, um, but at the same time. I w- I was more frustrated with this one, and I wanted, and I and I think my, now might be a good time to talk about melancholia because actually I have the same thing to say about a lot of my criticisms of melancholia. Is one of my favorite movies of the year is Tree of Life, but the same criticisms I lobby at melancholia, you could lobby at Tree of Life, and I was pretty uh, overwhelmed by the pretty much the entire movie, really of I melancholia. Mean, yeah, I uh, I had a very similar emotional. Uh, response to this like I did with the future and and how it portrays I mean the future is a different um, representation of feeling the sense of uh, stagnation in within a relationship and here it's just a really uh, beautiful and intimate portrayal of depression and I felt it was very realistic I was maybe it's again because of my um, uncertainty of how Lars von Trier was going to present this. In fact, even especially coming off, especially especially, not only coming off of, but being told that this is a companion piece to antichrist. Yeah. (laughs) It feels like the flip side to antichrist in some ways. I mean, the beginning is about someone who is trying to treat some, uh, someone's depression or 
someone's uh you know without trying to understand trauma it. without yeah without trying to understand it exactly yeah, and that's you know on, on one hand I, there are things about antichrist i really 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 like real quick melancholia about kirsten dunce um who it's a it's her day it's her wedding night mm-hmm. and she has depression and i'm going to say it what really hurts it is that first half really um, because well no the problem with the first half is there's only two characters um, that have any kind of dimension other than like that are other than one dimensional, and that's Kirsten Dunst and uh, Charlotte Gainsbourg. Charlotte Gainsbourg. I, yeah. Sorry, I can't remember the names. Justine and Claire. Claire. Okay. Justine being uh, Kirsten Dunst with depression, and Claire being her sister who's trying to help her, but yeah. clearly doesn't know how to help her. Those are the only two characters in the movie that have more than one dimension. Really. Well, I, what other ones? I like Kiefer Sutherland. I think he's he has one dimension. dimension. He is dismissive, uh, asshole, and he then he dies. <laughs> like, <laughs> well, I don't know. I think I, I just feel like there's always that person who's like, why can't you just snap out of it? Well, right. I'm not. I'm just saying I think that's he the only. Dim- that but really yeah, well. but I'm not saying that doesn't exist. I'm not saying it's unrealistic. That mm-hmm. character is unrealistic. I'm saying that's his only dimension. Well, I didn't. I wasn't put off by that. Well, you know, I just feel like. The yeah, whole dynamic, ahead. though, of that whole group, though, each one is a little bit one-dimensional, but the way they all fit together, I think, like, Charlotte Rampling's character is awesome. Ooh. And Ooh, just kind of the again? way she works the with them. Oh, the and mother. John Hurt. Uh, and, like, I'm thinking specifically of, like, the, the very first uh, bit where they're having the dinner. Yeah. And mm. Peter Sars or not Peter Alexander's, Sarsgaard. Yeah. Alexander Skarsgård. Um, you know, he's got his speech. Um, and then the two parents give their speeches and like that whole dynamic of all those characters is so frustrating. You're, you're like put into Kirsten Dunstan's show. Well, that's, that's my so point. Well. That's my point. My point is she has depression. If that wedding went well, like she would still be upset and that would be an illustration of depression. But I think any normal person, if that was their wedding, they would be just fucking upset and like horrified. I think mm-hmm. what she's doing, for the most part, is just completely justified. Well, she's trying to escape. From yeah, everybody. but any healthy person would do the same thing. Where the mother, her speech is denouncing the idea of marriage. The father is completely negligent, and her fucking boss is asking her to work and mm-hmm. hounding her and saying and giving her pressure by saying, "Oh, I'm going to fire this kid." Like that's the fucking worst night well, of you your see, life. You see how her depression develops through that through the family there, but. My point is that's not what depression is. Depression isn't um, you get sad when bad things yeah. happen. Depression is you get sad for no reason and there's no way you can talk yourself well, out of it. she should be happy at her own wedding, I guess. But, not at know. that fucking wedding. <laughs> that's my problem with it. Okay. And and if there was more than one dimension to the characters, maybe it'd be – but they're not funny. They're not – They're I don't, not know, ins- it, I don't it, see a lot of insight in, in those characters. And if it's from her point of view, maybe she would just – you know. But, See everybody okay, that but way. is the sec? Is, would you say the second half is from Claire's point of view? Um, yeah, because I, 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 they're totally the exact same. Yeah, they're totally the exact same. I so think. they can't beat from two different characters' point of view if one has crippling depression and the other doesn't. I, they're divided into two halves, and I feel like. But I'm saying if you're saying that if you're saying the first half is from Justine's perspective, mm-hmm. and the second half is from Claire's perspective, and they have the exact same tones, but they're. Exact that's opposite just Von Trier's choice. It's a whole, then it's a bad choice. Maybe. I mean, yeah. it's not going to be like traffic where he's got to have to have different, you know, cameras or different. I'm not asking uh, for different cameras. I'm just anything. saying they they feel the exact same. I don't think the idea that they're sub, 
that that we're viewing the wedding subjectively. Mm-hmm. I don't think that 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 works. I, I don't think that's true. I think that the events that we see at her wedding are the events that happen. And if those events happen to anyone's wedding, they'd be fucking devastated. Sure. I mean that the way that all plays out felt very organic. It felt so. Like, but, then, then why would you choose? That's like the worst possible choice to portray depression. To per, then, well, the what best, about the second half? I mean, I feel no. Like, I like this. I like the second half more because I think that because, and I want to say I don't think Melancholia is a bad movie. I think it's very flawed, and I think, um, and I think it's probably too long. Uh, but I. It's very, very accurate portrayal of depression, and I've, I was actually, um, I want to link, I'll send you the link, Jim, so we'll put it up with the, there's a great article, I think, on Salon, but it was uh, it was about how after Antichrist came out, everyone was decrying Von Trier as being misogynist. He had a, you know, he hired a misogyny expert to, to, to he literally, on the payroll, there was a misogyny expert to, expert to mm-hmm. prove that women were evil. And people didn't know, like, is he taking the piss out of people? Like, what the... Yeah. Like, people didn't know whether Antichrist was supposed to be taken seriously or as a joke or what. Um, but the fact is, most women with depression, when they're portrayed, they're portrayed as being hysterical, which is not yeah. what a, most depression is. Depression exactly. is not a burst of energy. Mm-hmm. But in most movies... Women, when they're being, when men are depressed, they're like Zach Braff and Garden State, but women are depressed, they're hysterical and they're breaking dishes and stuff. Sure. And this is actually one of the most accurate portrayals of depression in any movie. Yeah. I really like that. And I thought Von Trier showed a lot of empathy for these characters. Yes. And for those just... two characters, he showed a lot of empathy. Uh, and I wish... I, maybe again, it was my expectations. I mean, I, I've in the past have questioned his motives. With some of his movies, well, yeah. The thing is, you never know if he's just taking the piss or what. It's, yeah, he has and a very sneaky reading, sense of humor. Reading that he's dealt with his own bout of depression, yeah. Sort of, I feel like it's a very personal film for him, and just in how everything. Well, you know, felt- details like like you mentioned uh, mentioned to me. I don't think you meant, mentioned it yet. Were about the helping her in and out of the bath and God, that stuff kills me. Yeah, and I feel like eventually though. She she sees the end is not necessarily like oh it's a good thing but she's very accepting of it and she sort of embraces it and re- learns the a really good uh th- you know quality to have when you're a very emotionally intense person is to learn resilience to something that's devastating to sort of learn a, a coping mechanism and that's and I, that's a hundred percent and that's actually something I didn't consider until uh, well you mentioned it to me independently but someone else also mentioned it to me. Um, and I something I never considered, which is actually very true that I that I really respect about the movie. Yeah, I and, mean, I, I I was more moved as the movie went along, and uh, again, it's definitely one of my favorite movies of the year. Um, Andrew, what did you think of it overall? Well, I'll, I'll be honest. Um, when you said hadn't considered, this is a movie that needs to be considered considerably. <laughs> well, no, um, I, I mean, I thought, I'm, I'm just I, saying I just, that's just something I didn't think of. I didn't, I'm yeah, not saying I didn't yeah. give it thought. No, 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 I understand. But what I'm, what I'm saying is I just walked in the door from it literally an hour ago. Sure. Oh, okay. Yeah. There's so much more to chew on in my head. Um, I feel like the first, the part one and part two, I don't think they are that tonally similar. I felt like they were quite different. Um, I think part one by the way, the two parts are, are split up with a title card. Part one being titled Justine, uh, Justine, and yeah. part two is Claire. So, like, those are the characters 
we're going to focus on. Um, part one, it's all at night. It's all very warm. There's lots of feeling, I felt, negative mm-hmm. or positive. Um, it's it's uh, lots of frustration, um, lots of love, lots of anger, um, just lots of feelings going around the room the whole time. Part two, to me, felt really cold, both visually and from an emotional standpoint, because you're just like you said, it's from Claire's point of view. And to me, she just seems very like other than her dread, like she feels very emotionless. Like she needs to take care of um, Justine like it, the whole like time. Can, I don't know. Like it's very clinical, very cold, very gray, yeah. very blue. Um, mm-hmm. Tonally, I felt that both the part one and part two were quite dissimilar. Um, but as a whole, I, I really like the movie. But again, I need to chew on a lot more yeah. stuff. It's, there's a lot going on. I will say, I think it's the best looking movie I've seen this year. Oh, I think really? It's better looking than Tree of Life or The Skin I Live In. It's fucking gorgeous. I, maybe it's. I really maybe need to see it on the big I'm, screen. Well, I don't. I don't know if I'm ever going to get a chance. But I. I mean, other than the beginning, which is beautiful, sure, but it also just feels like a like an Annie Leibovitz kind of Vanity Fair photo shoot <laughs> that's animated. Yeah. No, no problem here. I mean, I even liked it. I liked the slow motion in Antichrist. Like, I mean, I like I like Annie Leibovitz Vanity Fair photo shoots. I'm just saying it doesn't. It feels just sort of operatic for its own sake, but it's surreal and stuff. Yeah, I actually. But I mean, the rest of it, like walking out onto the golf course, all the shots on the terrace. I actually uh, really don't like uh, von Trier's kind of aesthetic. Um, I mean, it's not dancer in the dark. It's not low end video, but it's still just mostly handheld, mostly you know, point the camera at the actors and uh, I can see the handheld thing being a problem. It's kind of weird. Yeah. Wasn't Dancer in the Dark totally different when she was uh, having the musical moment? Yeah. Well, there, yeah, there's the dichotomy there too. Um, I, I mean, I think the musical numbers were shot on either 16 millimeter or something, but, and then the rest was shot in low grade video. Yeah. And I mean, it's, you know, it's not idiot, uh, the idiots, uh, which is another movie that's just, you know, low grade video. It's, I'm not saying it's ugly. I just, um, I certainly could never compare it to Tree of Life, but I mean that's just personal preference, obviously. Hmm. Um, yeah, I, now, plan, I plan to rewatch this. Martha, one, Martha, no, Martha, I'm gonna Martha. I'm gonna rewatch Melancholia. See if maybe yep. the two halves feel more tonally different than oh, they did the first time. Yeah. Um, you watch that. One more question: something that really baffles me, but apparently a lot of people feel. Um, you do not feel that the planet of Melancholia is a metaphor. No, I mean, I think it's what's really happening within the I'm movie. not saying it's not really happening. I'm saying that it's a metaphor, though. Like, it exists as a metaphor. Mm. I, I wouldn't say so. I think it's meant to be taken as is. I mean, I th- I, I think it's kind of a um, an on-the-nose sort of choice to call the planet Melancholia. Um, I don't know if that was a good idea or not, but <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I feel I, I didn't have a problem with that. Andrew, is do you think the planet uh, Melancholia is a metaphor? Ah, uh, geez, it seems like a question for Von Trier. Um, yeah. <laughs> I'm just the way you viewed it, because for me, it, it just feels so absurd and so like there's so many other ways to have the world ending, especially nowadays. Too literal. <laughs> yeah, like like it's yeah. I'm a I am kind of a literalist though, so I kind of do see things for what they are rather than trying to look into something. But I mean, yeah, this, I mean, the the world come crashing down on you, sort of metaphor. Is that kind of 
where you're going with it. Yeah, the way it looks beautiful, I guess. Or I, my, my question is like, I, I don't. I think if it's literally just a plot device, then it's a fucking ridiculous one, and I don't understand why. Like literally too simplistic for you or no not it's the opposite i think every day i feel the world could end at any minute i feel the whole world is on the brink of destruction that's <laughs> and that's really one of the other things i appreciate is sort of an uh, one of the underlying things of my own depression is that i am constantly thinking about the world um collapsing and i feel like if you're isolated on a big sort of villa or big manor on a hill um, there's a million ways that you could say the world is ending that would have the same uh, plot reason as, you know, that have the same story, would it would do the same things to the characters that don't involve a planet hiding behind the sun called Melancholia doing quote-unquote flyby, which is harmless apparently, which is ridiculous because <laughs> if, if the moon was three feet off, like the waves would become, you know, like... I feel like it's too ridiculous, and I feel like Von Trier has done this so much with, you know, like Dogville is certainly not meant to be taken literally, you know, and Antichrist, the characters don't even have names. Uh, Like, I feel like it's too – but apparently many feel like you do where it's – it's they don't feel it's a metaphor. Um, I didn't really get that. Because, I mean, if you don't feel it's a metaphor, I just feel it's ridiculous. But if it is a metaphor, I don't understand – I don't think it's a good one for depression – because depression doesn't depression feels like it's coming from the whole world as opposed <laughs> to a separate thing coming at you. Mm-hmm. And I and okay, and one more question: Kiefer Sutherland's character, like I feel he has nearly as much screen time as Kirsten Dunst. I mean, especially towards that second, especially in the second half. Um, what's the point of all that? Is it just for exposition, just so we know what's happening with the planet? Because it just there's so much time spent with him going, oh, this is so beautiful. Oh, this is so great. Yeah, it's just his, you know, just to throw in his perspective on everything. But it's also like just having that um, realist or the, uh, you know, scientific um, look at what's taking place and sort of trying to bring that, you know, uh, you know, he's trying to basically like say that oh you know it, this is happening and isn't it a beautiful thing whereas er, that's his own personal interpretation of what's taking place and just, to me that's and, that's not yeah. a, he he feels ahead. like he needs to he's he's the male uh he's the male figure in the film he's the rich guy he's got to be in control of something this is you know something that he can use to sort of control his family and when things don't you know who i'm reminded of this is, might sound weird but um Billy Zane's character in Titanic. Yeah, like no, I definitely see that. That's who I'm reminded of. Yeah. Okay, so you um, see this. if you is... listen to the end of Titanic, there is exposition about what Billy Zane's character, what happens to him <laughs> um, at the end. Uh, you know, oh, that's probably spoiler. That's fine. That Titanic, out. we have a two-year. If it's over two years old, we'll spoil yeah. the hell out of it. So Anyway, I found those two characters, you know, Kiefer Sutherland is, is, isn't exactly a villain, but he's clearly like, kind of a prote- or uh, antagonist. Right. Um just being very heartless but thinking he knows all the answers and is in control and don't worry. Um so I, I liked his character quite a bit actually. And I liked there is a a little bit of a twist in his um I can't I don't know how to explain it really, but there there he does all of a sudden you you realize oh he wasn't maybe quite as confident 
as we thought he was the whole time. Which well, is kinda the problem, I don't think it necessarily needs to be even said because he's clearly wrong the whole time because in the first five minutes of the movie, they tell us what will happen. So yeah, every time right. he goes, oh, it's just going to fly by, we know he's wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, we know he's wrong. But it, I don't know. Like the, when they're sitting it's a more at the of a, you think it's more of a moment. He says something, and um, Charlotte Gainsbourg says to him, "What? You mean you? Uh, you you thought your family was in danger this whole time? You know that scene where maybe he wasn't quite as confident. I don't know. I, I just like the character. Yeah, there always has to be like this pompous know-it-all. You know, mm-hmm. in, in in these movies, I think. What are these movies? Because what movie is like this, Jim? You, <laughs> I know. I mean, like, like this isn't Deep Impact. <laughs> <laughs> I, it kind of is, though. From Lars von Trier, like I said right away, this is Lars von Trier's disaster film. Like this is his Armageddon. This is his The Core. Yeah, cor- it's just correlating from a really the end interesting of the world with depression point of view. Yeah, yeah. but yeah. I feel like his character only makes sense in the disaster movie context. As opposed, I mean, no, it, it it's fine. It's just I I think it's it's not something that I think these are bothered me big problems, and I I think they hurt the movie's effectiveness overall. And what do you do? You think? Sorry, I don't mean to drag it on, but yeah. what do you guys think about the fact that the ending is at the beginning? At first, I don't know how I feel about it. Like, I kind of wish we saw all that at the end, but at the same uh, time, it makes the movie more interesting to know how it's going to end. I actually, mm. I, I, I complained about this um, when I first saw it, and because I'd, all I'd been seeing is rave reviews and stuff, so I was surprised about how much I didn't like it. So I was sort of, you know, lodging all my complaints on Twitter and Facebook. And my friend, you know, previous guest who's on for the Wachowskis episode, Ren, pointed out that, I mean, it's sort of. It, he, it's sort of an like an operatic overture almost, but the bigger purpose it solves is if if you, if you didn't know for sure, hundred percent sure that the world was going to end at the end of the movie, instead of sympathizing with the feeling of doom, you would be doubting Kirsten Dunst, and there would be some kind of mystery in the second half. <laughs> um, and it's it's almost it's just like a uh, it's just a story technique in order to get you in the mindset of this character instead of the mindset of, you know, another character mm-hmm. huh. where it gets you thinking every time he goes, it definitely won't hit us. You think that's ridiculous, which is what someone who with depression who can only see absolute doom would think, you know. Right. So it's actually because I, I, I thought it added nothing. But I think that was only because I already knew the world was going to end anyway, um, because I, I think I may have read a review or something where it mentions it. But but it's true that if you just went into this movie not knowing at all what was going to happen, because, I mean, in the beginning of the movie, all she points out is there's a star. And then they start talking about how there's going to be this glorious natural event where the planet will fly by. Mm-hmm. Um, Kirsten Dunst doesn't, isn't even really there to talk about how everything is doomed because she's catatonic for most of the f- second half of the movie um i think instead of making it a mystery of what will happen or what might happen it's it's just to get you into the doom perspective now i don't know uh if there's enough because i don't think there's enough i think all of the sci-fi trappings are literally that there is a planet that was previously hiding behind the sun that is going to crash on the earth i don't think there's really any other explanations i don't think there's any other uh, well, there's this weird bit of expo- exposition where she talks about I know things. Like yeah. she knew I, the number of beans. Yeah, I, w- I was going to ask you did guys she, about that too. Did she know the the knew for a fact 
that the planet was going to crash in, and that's why she part of the reason why she was depressed. I feel she knew it was all going to end anyway. I, and I mean, this that her saying, "I know that it, it's going to end, that the world's going to end, and the planet's going to crash into us." I I I related to that because I just. I mean, dealing with depression the same way, like I said before, I know that all of civilization is going to collapse. And I who knows and, when, but it will I, happen. I feel like I know that it's going to be in like the next 15 years. And that's just a <laughs> that, real optimist. You know, I mean, that's and that's just, yeah, I'm, I'm not. And that's the point. But I don't understand what the jelly beans had to do with it, like why they gave it a kind of a supernatural edge. Yeah, um, like she's psychic or something. It was weird. I didn't I didn't quite understand what they were going for that. It's uh well, maybe it's just to also, showcase like who cares how okay. who cares about the end of the world and who cares about the fact that how many jelly beans are in the are in the jar. Kind of like you know, that's at least to her. I mean, she's whatever. I I mean, it's weird that the fact that she but, knew how many. Yeah, but she did know. It's not that. Yeah. Huh. But I don't know. I mean, it's it's, they even it's kind of, of insignificant they even to say her. To- they even sort of made the point at the beginning where the husband's like, you want to write one in for her? He goes, oh, I wouldn't dare guess for her, like, which is sort of like, oh, so was that significant? Or... Yeah. Um, yeah. I'd love to hear someone else's, you know, again, if uh, you're listening, um, hopefully I mean, I'm just listening. glad that both of these hopefully movies... Hopefully we have listeners. I'm glad both of these movies are out there because of the conversations that yeah. they can evoke from people. I'm, and I'm absolutely not saying Melancholia is worthless. I think there's a lot of... I'm definitely not saying that about Martha and right. Marcy May either. I, I just... Um, it's problems for me uh, affected it a lot, Um but, I mean, uh, apocalyptic, apocalyptic visions are sort of nothing new. It's nothing we haven't seen before. I just, I like Von Trier's approach to it very which, much. So, like, he just sort of having that operatic feel to it, yeah. and then, you know, having a complete antithesis when the movie sort of kicks into gear with the story, and having it play out in a very organic, Rachel getting married kind of fashion. Mm-hmm. And then the pure emotional response I have to the uh, way he portrays depression really... Uh, really worked on worked for me and then again just her arc of acquiring like i said this kind of resilience i responded to that very much just sort of observing the world in this in these intimate terms kind of i felt genuine i don't know as opposed to like manipulative it doesn't really number one it doesn't really feel like a victory and number two if the other thing is you that I, i actually just thought about is you're saying that one of the one of the themes of the movie is how something that can be a weakness can end up being a strength. Yeah, but there's no other instance of adversity in the movie where her depression is a strength. And I think almost the first half would have been a perfect example of that, where if she already thought that the wedding was going to be shit, and her husband and the her sister were all upset that their parents were acting like monsters and their boss, but she was resigned to that because she already assumed it would act like shit. That would almost fit. But being that the only instance in which her uh, weakness is turned into a plus is when literally the world is ending. Like that seems like the, the cheap, not cheap, but the smallest, most hollow victory ever. And I, I don't, don't think she was, as I don't aware. necessarily, th- I don't think she was as aware at that point. Well, at the I, wedding. It doesn't, I don't think it's, I don't think it matters because she still has it. Number number no again. Okay, number two, husband completely. I'm I'm madly in love with you, and you have crippling depression. But if you act depressed at our wedding night, I'm going to leave you. Like what the fuck is that? I like, don't know. <laughs> that, was, that could happen. No, it couldn't. That's yeah. that's then he's an idiot. And like why why like I'm just saying. What does that add to the movie that he's a fucking moron that is acting irrationally? 
He can just be a moron that's acting irrationally. All right, but you don't put like you're acting like this is a documentary and Lars von Trier just found this shit. He put mm-hmm. it there. And you know, if you put something there that makes no sense but takes up screen time, then that's a that's a detraction, you know, like Yeah. Well, uh, I mean, I just didn't you know, tune it or hone in on that particular component. No, I, under- really I understand. Have, I, uh, you know, contribution to why but that worked or didn't I, work. I feel like if in any other instance her depression was a plus for her other than the end of the fucking world like that's not like that's not really that uplifting or <laughs> oh it's not uplifting but you were talking about it like it was uplifting like the idea that your strength that your weaknesses can, can I be I responded to it I wouldn't I didn't say I was like and, I didn't find it like gloriously beautiful I just I was kind of along for what he went with you know like I I, I sensed it better with this with this movie more than uh, Martha Marcy Mar- Mar- with the ending, especially. I can't even say the fucking name right. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a uh, it's a it's a M- long M- title. M M M M M M. That's uh. Yeah. All right. Well, but, well, maybe uh, for our year end episode, we'll both come back to these films. I think we absolutely will, especially since different things to say. Especially since uh, Quadruple M will be in my top ten list, and I'm pretty sure Melancholia will be in yours. Absolutely. So we'll we'll get back. To, we'll both watch them again. Yeah, and and for the year end episode, it's just going to be us along with other people just uh, contributing their top tens either via voicemail or email. Sounds That's good to me. The plan. I didn't even I know can't that plan. It's year end already. I know we're getting there. Isn't that nuts? Did, oh. you, did either of you guys see Hugo? No. No. Okay. I'm. I've been hearing great things. about it. I've been it. hearing good things, but I'm always like the same way that uh, I've been hearing mixed. I've been hearing it's really great, and I've been hearing it's. Eh. Okay. I, well, the thing is, like, whenever the internet goes crazy over a genre movie, I always, like, mentally subtract a letter grade from it because <laughs> I, they just tend to over – like, people are going ape shit, no pun intended, over Rise of the Planet of the Apes just because it was, like, better than they expected and because it was a genre movie. Yeah. And I feel the same way like, maybe about Attack the Block. I think Attack the Block was a very, you know, a B-plus, very good movie, and I keep he- reading people being like, oh, best of the year, and it's like – Oh my god! No, no. no, no. <laughs> well, no, no. But I'm just saying. I think internet critic, uh, film critics tend to overvalue genre, um, and in the same way, I think they tend to overvalue things that are metaphors or about filmmaking. You know, I think they love it so much that they'll excuse movies. That, so I was interested to see if either of you had actually seen mm. Hugo. I'm not saying it's not bad. Yet. I haven't seen it, so I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, I'm just always cautious, very nervous about. Well, I think we can. Uh... <laughs> get to some um, more agreeable terms now that we're yeah. ready to move on to our director of the episode, which is Mr. Steven, Steven Soderbergh. Soderbergh, tell me. Hey, yo, I got a new way of directing films. You know, you got to mix up pet projects with big studio fare. Yo, let's get into it. Aww. Soderbergh, the fucking man. One for him and one for them. Directing, shooting, editing, he does it all. It's in the can now. Tell me, yo, the burke, yo, the soda burke, yo, the soda burke, yo, the soda burke. Peter Andrews, the DP, worked with stars like George Clooney. Love genre films, but not afraid to get things more low key. Tell me, yo, break the soda burke, yo, break the soda burke, yo, break the soda burke, yo, break the soda burke. Steven Soderbergh is a regular renaissance man when it comes to the filmmaking process. He often edits, shoots, produces, writes, directs, 
and I've heard he even brings his own catering to the set. That's not true. Um, around the age of 15, when his father became the Dean of Education at Louisiana State University, Soderbergh discovered the art of movie making, directing his Super 8 films with friends. Then he enrolled in the university's film animation class and began making short 16mm films with second-hand equipment. After that, he worked some odd jobs as a game show scorer and found work later as a freelance film editor. Then, when Steven Soderbergh moved to Baton Rouge in the span of just eight days on, le- on yellow legal pad notebook paper, he wrote his debut independent full-length feature, Sex, Lies, and Videotape. At the age of 26, Soderbergh became the youngest filmmaker to ever win the prestigious Palme d'Or at the Cannes Film Festival. Dubbed the poster boy for the Sundance generation, Sex, Lies, and Videotape helped to ignite the independent film movement through distribution by Miramax Studios and was also added to the Library of Congress as a film noted for being culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. It's the most provocative film of the year. Vincent Canby in the New York Times calls it one of the best of 89, exceptionally accomplished and witty. Being happy isn't all that great. The last time I was really happy, I got so fat. The Los Angeles Times calls it brilliant, a delicate and sexually charged film. Rolling Stone says it's dazzling, fun, and scorchingly erotic. Why don't you let me tape you? Doing what? John and Anne don't have sex anymore. And Time Magazine calls it terrific. The season's smartest and funniest film. It's for me. Sex, Lies, and Videotape. Recently, we, uh, we talked about Cronenberg's Crash for the Movie Club podcast. And there's a film there that's kind of about the inability to connect in a meaningful way and how easy it can be to rely on individual fetishes to fill the void. That one obviously uh, lacked humanity and, in my opinion, refused to let the audience be engaged on any level. <laughs> uh, Sex, Lies on video t- Sex, Lies, and Videotape, on the other hand, is kind of the complete opposite uh, reaction for me. Um, it, it really struck a chord back in the day. It, it, uh, it, it did very well. It was a successful independent feature. It helped launch, you know, Miramax along with um, My Left Foot that same year. So it it definitely has a lot of historical significance to, you know, this type of approach to minimalist independent filmmaking. But here it's also the characters and the story and just how stripped down and bare everything is that I really respond to. Um, I recently read a review from Jonathan Rosenbaum, who actually criticized its minimalism, saying that Soderbergh really doesn't do anything inventive with the camera. But in my opinion, this type of story doesn't require that necessarily. It's all about intimacy. It's all about pushing in closely on the characters and their um, personal reactions to certain situations. Here, um, Graham is played by James Spader, and he comes into the lives of his old college buddy, John, played by Peter Gallagher, along with his wife, Anne, played by Andy McDowell. And um, Graham's own fetish is sort of uncovered, and it has an impact on on the relationships of everybody involved. 
Um, and also, it's we should note that uh, John is cheating on his wife with uh, with her sister Cynthia. And for me, when I first saw this movie, um, I really, really liked it quite a bit. It was at a time when I was getting into independent film, where I'd seen movies like Reservoir Dogs, where it was more about the characters and dialogue, and uh, you know, less about style. And I felt really engaged by just watching these four characters interact and the way they communicate is kind of how I prefer some of my communications to be uh, really insightful and honest and uh, it's it's also something I should note that the movie examines uh, a couple of things that I find endlessly interesting in fact I'm in the process of becoming a therapist and this movie is also an examination of that process and the consequences of sort of uh, confessing all these personal feelings that not everybody feels compelled to share. But um, all these conversations, even just outside of the therapy sessions, still feel like they would belong in therapy, and that's kind of what I like, um, how uh, Soderbergh cuts back and forth at the very beginning. I feel like that sort of sets the tone for the entire film, and it's also an editing style that I admire greatly. I, it's also used brilliantly in, in the limey. So my my reaction to Sex, Lies, and Videotape today, now, is it keeps getting better and better with every viewing. Patrick, your thoughts? I find it odd that anyone could criticize a movie like this, which is very beautiful. Now, it's not, you know, it's not a De Palma movie, but it's very clean, and there are a lot of instances of, you know, very specific, you know, mise-en-scene and camera movement and, uh, you know, just, like, little things, like, the way the camera in one shot will follow, um, uh, I'm, I'm sorry. What is, um, Andy McDowell's sister's name? Cynthia. will follow Cynthia from one end of the bar all the way to the other to get the phone. And, you know, it's a clean movie. And of, of course the, uh, transition from, um, at the very, at the climax of the movie, the transition from watching videotape to seeing the actual events, uh, it's not without style. Um, but definitely what's important is uh, it does not let any kind of style overwhelm the characters and the characters are what drive everything. And I think one of the most remarkable things about this movie is um, I think, uh, uh, I think Peter Gallagher is kind of a bad actor. Uh, and I think Andy McDowell is kind of a worse actor. <laughs> um, and this is very much, you know, a uh, cast of four with very, very minimal addition by a, one of my favorite film drunkards ever. <laughs> you know? yeah, he's funny. So. Oh, he's so good. Um, but, uh, but, uh, the fact that ha- a full half of the cast, I would say are populated by, uh, you know, bad actors and, but they're so well cast. Um, Peter Gallagher is such a fucking asshole. Like in, in this movie, I mean, I don't know for real life. He might be an <laughs> asshole in real life. Uh, He's an, such an asshole in this movie, and he is the kind of person where the second you see him smile, you're like, oh, what the fuck are you so yeah. happy about? <laughs> I, I really don't like Peter Gallagher. but And Annie McDowell is just so clean and so pure that yeah. she annoys in the sort of same way, which is the point of her character. The point of both the characters is that they are not addressing something um, in their lives, and they're hiding behind something. Um, this that's actually what draws the, them together. First time I, this is actually the first time I'm watching it, I realized that Peter Gallagher is a sex addict. Um, the way that he's constantly hounding uh, Cynthia and the way that it actually 
fucks up his work and you know he loses a big client like right he it's not just uh i thought it just he was at first just an asshole but he is acting in compulsively in ways that are implied james spader's character used to you know um but uh, what i'm saying is they're cast very well and but one of the most fascinating performances is james spader because james spader is one of the most charismatic and handsome and just cool guys of the 80s uh like all of those you know john hughes movies and stuff like that like he's just very cool and sure he's always got a cigarette hanging out of his mouth and he's got a smile he always knows what's up and you see him and everything that comes out of his mouth you you see this the thought that before it comes out and it's it's like fascinating watching the struggle of this super charming actor being forced to eliminate all of that charisma almost almost he's still very charismatic but like to sort um and it immediately makes you curious about the character and what's going on and uh and and of course all the way the characters interact is so great and i would say this is what really makes this movie special is i can't believe it came out in 1989 because it almost feels like it's about facebook (laughs) like it's all about the way people use technology and they you know the way people communicate in ways to distance themselves you know like without intimacy the way that the first time peter gallagher finds out any of the problems his wife is having is seeing a fucking videotape you know and like because he doesn't care because everyone is afraid to and even the person who thinks he's being honest because he is equating honesty with not lying um you know even he has problems that's what that break in, in that climax makes it so powerful. Um, I was, because when I was watching it, I'm like, oh, this is thematically, this is almost the same thing as Catfish. <laughs> Interesting. It's just not, it, it just doesn't have that weird condescension and it doesn't have that <laughs> sort of, uh, you know, obnoxious uh, leads. Wow. I never thought of that, but that's, that's pretty cool. Well, that's, yeah, that's what I, makes me want to watch it again. Yeah. Uh, that, and that struggle between intimacy and sex and everything is just fascinating to watch. Um, definitely. Andrew? Um, yeah, well, first of all, thank you guys for like making me rewatch this movie because I'm a huge Soderbergh fan, as you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is one of two movies um, that sort of had a bad taste in my mouth. I first saw Sex, Lies, and Videotape, I don't know, a long time. Like, I was 20, and I remember not really liking it. Um, rewatching it now, I love it. I love this movie. Um, and I... It's definitely, I think, Jim, you said, the more you watch it, the better it gets. And I think it's just because of the subject matter is more mature. uh, And it just, I wasn't ready for it at age 20. So here I am now impotent and a sex addict. uh, (laughs) I can relate to it so much better. Um, No, but I, I just really loved it. And like instantly I loved it. I, the character introductions to this movie, It was amazing. It was just Andy McDowell speaking to her therapist. It was like it was like a narration, but it wasn't a narration because you're actually watching her speak. And while she's talking about her problems and she's never masturbated and all this stuff, you're you're introduced to the other characters. Peter Gallagher is sleeping with Laura San Giacomo. Um, you know, you see James Spader just kind of getting out of a car with jeans on and like without any of those characters talking, you know who all of them are. And instantly you're engaged on this dynamic of this crew. What's going to happen? 
and not only that, but just to echo also what you said, Patrick, is I was going to say, I, I actually don't think all four of these actors are really anything special. But wow, does Soderbergh just bring something out of them that is captivating. That, that opening scene, again, with McDowell talking to her therapist is so believable and so relatable the, even. the little um, laugh when she's like I, it just seems silly like when like, yeah oh, when she God. so Andy McDowell that's so her when she seems stupid she calls masturbation stupid <laughs> <laughs> yeah um, and I don't know like I I was really into it um, I, I I guess I have a lot of stuff to say about the movie but yeah in general I think the biggest thing is how surprised I was how much more I liked it. Like I was afraid I was going to come back and go, eh, it's not really my cup of tea compared to other Soderbergh's work, which is interesting because while watching this, um, I it's totally Soderbergh. Now in retrospect, having seen everything else, particularly something like the girlfriend experience, I can mm. see Soderbergh in this film or I can see his his camera work. Um, echoed 20 years later um, in in more recent films and I, th- I found that really fascinating I thought the camera work in this movie it's subtle but it's interesting and it's always moving it's always zooming even if it's really slowly like you mentioned when the, the camera follows Cynthia I yep. think is her name yeah yep. Cynthia like going down the bar there's another scene with her um, I guess it's it's on the video that James Spader is doing but it's on her face talking and she gets up for a second to uh, like remove her skirt and the camera stays there and she actually disappears from the frame. And for a good like four seconds, we're just looking at a blank couch. Like those are interesting director's choices. Yeah. He knows when to move the camera and when to just leave it alone. It's awesome. There's I like- a reser- reverse zoom after she has an orgasm. Um, oh right, yep, yep. The nice. vertigo, vertigo shot, yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, which I did not remember at all. Uh, and, and if if you allow me to get pretentious and film studenty, uh, I love the sort of the intro where it's it's almost like a fucking like Stan Brackage where it's just shooting the the ground. Um, and then as it slows down, like because at first it's just a blur of color, and then it slows down, it's recognizable as gravel. And that sort of mirrors the themes of chaos coming and coming and putting everything in order because every every other person in this movie is rigidly, you know, set in their ways and is afraid. And then James Spader comes and he fucks everyone up in that way where he makes everyone be honest. Uh, and it's I don't know that's a that's more of a pretentious thing, but. No, it's kind of by accident too. Like his character has no intention of fucking things up. He's just there. Yeah, they are the ones that come it, to it, him and sort of explore themselves. It's the opposite. Naturally, it's the opposite. He is his intention is to leave no trace. You know, his yeah. intention is to be able. You know, that's why he can't get intimate with people, and that's why he has the videotape because he wants to be able to not affect someone. He doesn't Dis- want to distance get, himself from but, all but that. If, of course, you know, and that's what makes the climax so satisfying is that it after after he has made everyone else confront or, you know, in the piece of in the case of Peter Gallagher's character refuse to confront, uh, you know, sort of their problems, it suddenly all comes back on him. And that whole scene, the arc of that scene and the two characters uh, of Andy McDowell and James Spader and just where they start and where they end and. 
things get out of control and then things get sort of calm again. And like, it's an incredible, incredible, like 10 minutes of film that. Yeah. It, it's, it's just, they're trying to regain some sense of control of themselves like they or fucking discover themselves. Act their asses moment. off. Uh, you know, James Spader sort of laughing nervously, you know, cause, and like the first time you see that shell break and he, you finally see James Spader. You don't see the sort of, James Spader on a uh, two second delay, you know, mm-hmm. like, it's... I like it when he says, I don't find this reverse role reversal thing. Very interesting. Yeah. I don't find it. Interesting. I don't like, like, I don't like you, that you turn the tables on me. Very interesting. It's like I do. <laughs> Again, he's still, he's still refusing to acknowledge it for what it is. He's still using an intellectual distance, which again, it feels almost, precedent prescient of a uh, you know of, of the 90s and stuff and no but all the actors are in, are in, uh, incredible and what's in what's amazing to me is and it's almost ironic you know Soderbergh will later you know with the movies like Bubble and Full Frontal and you know I honestly I saw Girlfriend Experience and I was only half paying attention so I feel like I'm not even qualified to talk about that movie um uh i was it just didn't really interest me but i didn't i didn't really stick through with it but like he actually uses digital video to try to achieve that kind of intimacy and that kind of yeah you know, like he is james mm-hmm. spader in a way but the funny thing is i don't think any of those movies have the raw nerve and emotion that's in this film which is actually kind of stylish and mm-hmm. has real actors and you know like uh and i imagine was completely scripted and not you know, other than line delivery, not really improvised at all, you know? Yeah, I was wondering about that, actually. Do, you don't think there was any ad-libbing going on throughout this? I felt like either that's just incredibly well-acted and and natural, um, but it just, there were a couple scenes, I can't think of any, like, specifically right now, but that I, did feel like maybe Soderbergh just said, well, you know, I, what I do you think this moment. character would do right now? What what exactly would you say? There are a few great moments, like uh, when she first discovers the videotapes, and the her glass starts getting more and more horizontal, and she spills, mm-hmm. and he grabs like a bunch of newspaper or something and puts it on the. Like I feel like that stuff is like a real moment that happened, but I don't know. Like maybe it's maybe just they're such good actors that they're able to improvise. But I feel like every word of the script is so you know, powerful and, and every word speaks volumes about the character and stuff. It doesn't feel like the kind of, and I don't want to be derogatory about towards improvised, you know, acting and stuff. I think a lot of brilliant things have happened in films like that, but it, it often feels like chatter and I don't feel like there's any chatter at all in this film. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I feel like I, I, I hate to sort of uh, <laughs> dwell or at least continue the conversation that we had uh, regarding crash but i in that review i said there's just way too much sex and not enough interaction not enough characters communicating their feelings in any way in any meaningful way and this movie is sort of the opposite it's where you see characters actually engaging and trying to figure themselves out in a very relatable way and you know and there's very little sex and I, you know i think even when the, at the time when this came out everybody's like oh sex is in the title we're going to see lots of sex you know and people were flocking to the theater like you know hoping it's, it was going to be and it's similar in the way that i remember when full frontal came out people were like the follow-up to sex lies and videotype and i'm like why because <laughs> the because the title references something <laughs> sexual it's not anything similar um 
I, yeah. but even in those moments, like, uh, where, uh, James Spader's interviewing Cynthia, like, that's really inventive camera work, the way it shot the camera mirrors from his perspective. They're both going to lie down. It is a sex scene. It's just them talking, but it's shot exactly like it's a sex scene, you know? It's verbal intimacy. Yeah, and that's, and that's the point, because to him, intimacy is sex. Um, and because he has the opposite problem as everyone else in the movie in which sex is completely divorced from intimacy. To him, they're too close and they're too much the same thing and mm-hmm. he can't. It's funny, like everything about the movie, like even the the market. Well, I don't know about the marketing, but like the vi- the cover of the DVD or the poster, um, the still shots, even the tone of the movie itself. It is really steamy um yeah. sexual like sinister even like like i'm looking at the poster right now and it's just like slits of yeah. stills like you just see peter gallagher's eyes or just a videotape or just like a lot of skin in one shot and it, you get the vibe that it's gonna be really graphic like crash and i don't even think i is there even any nudity in the film no you see peter gallagher with the plant on him so and you see it. him yeah. basically nude with, except he's covered up. By the way, that scene is Wouldn't so. Hurt? I don't know having a plant on your dick. <laughs> it, I, 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 not if yeah. I, I don't want to get into the logistics of erec- of <laughs> See, erections and like goes. ten pound pots of that's where my of mind earth goes. and plants. But yeah, that would that would probably hurt you. Um, <laughs> but again, that's just such a silly childish thing, and that little look he has on his face, like he's fourteen. Mm-hmm. Um, and he thinks he's being so clever. It's such a great moment in his character. But I, what I was going to mention before when you were talking about the intro and everything set up, I love how literally you you hear her talk about sex, then you find out that her husband is lying to her by seeing him cheat, and then mm-hmm. the very final moment before the movie gets up to speed, um, you see James Spader open his trunk, grab a shirt, and you see a video camera there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's like literally uh, the title is spelled out in the first five minutes, um, you know, in, in images. And I lo- that that video camera. I mean, obviously it's in the title, but that video camera. If there wasn't that video camera there, and you just thought, oh, he's this weird guy, you would you would think that the where the way the movie was going was. Oh, this is a movie about Annie McDowell realizing that she's in an empty life as a housewife, and what she really needs is a more artistic person who isn't materialistic. So, and so they're going to go into an apartment, you know, go apartment hunting. They're going to fall in love, and it's going to be that thing, and it's going to be a steamy romance, you know, we can't, but we must thing. But <laughs> that fucking video camera in the trunk is is like a. It's like seeing, you know, again, not to get too film school pretentious, but it's like seeing the bomb being put in the car at the end of Touch of Evil. It's like, that's going to go off. That is that is sinister, you know, because mm-hmm. there is no sec- there's no sexy, steamy romance movie in the world that has a video camera that is good. Like, there's no there's no good that can come from that video camera. Yeah, you have. I mean, if you were watching this for the first time, you could have those pre- preconceived notions that this guy's probably going to be a creep and you know, prey on them in some way or do something lurid like you'd expect in one of those sort of soft core movies you'd see on Showtime or, or maybe something with uh, with Richard Gere. And th- like just I mean, the fact that this this the title of this movie is spelled out, I think it's pretty uh, it's pretty magnificent. And also just how Andrew was mentioning how the characters are all introduced. I really like the accompaniment um, in general of the uh, of the off screen sort of 
the off-screen voice of Anne talking to the therapist. And those scenes of two, like, you know, supposedly separate characters and the storylines are intercut, that's, that is pretty much how the limey plays out almost through the entire film. And I really like that style of editing. I'd like to see more examples of that um, where you're hearing one thing but seeing something completely different. That's really cool. I mean, I just, I, just, I know that sort of reflects at least his style early in his career, too. I just think that's a really interesting choice that sort of, I think, not many filmmakers utilize anymore. I don't know. Speaking of interesting choices, there's one thing I want to ask you about. It's pretty much the only thing in the movie I don't quite get. All of the voices on the telephone are not through the telephone. They sound like they're just being spoken Mm -hmm. in the same room. Mm -hmm. What do you think that means? Like, What do you think he was doing there? I don't think it means anything because it's an I, it's an odd choice, and but it's totally. a, it had to be a choice he made to not have put the standard filter on there, so it sounds like they're talking through a phone. Like either it's something I don't know. I definitely noticed it, but go, go ahead, Jim. Sorry. No, either it's just something that they didn't. I, I can't imagine that being a budgetary constraint. No, it would not be a budgetary constraint. No, um, I don't know. It's again, it's something that I definitely I picked up on and noticed and wondered if you know it had significance other than like you said to have some sort of closeness in the way we're that's all i can guess that's all i can guess is that but at the same time you would yeah i don't understand i don't understand and i don't think it's significant i'm just saying i thought it was just yeah because i definitely noticed it and i just thought huh they must have just like i don't a budget i obviously it's not a budgetary thing but i felt like almost like it was like eh we just don't need to do it what, why do it? What's the point? Let's just keep it as it is. It sounds good. Yeah. Leave it alone. I don't know. Like, not laziness, not a budget, just, eh, why do it? I wonder yeah, if thing. maybe the idea is, like, this movie takes place in Baton Rouge, but all of the locations, despite having a ton of locations, there's never any real sense of the geography of what's happening. Um, you know, there's never, there's not, other than the very opening scene of James Spader driving into town, um, there's no scenes of people, uh, you know, arriving or leaving locations. There's no, you know, there's barely any outdoor at all. Yeah, it's Ex- mostly interior. Except there's one scene where Andy McDowell is just walking. I think, that, to, and that's actually where I knew it took place in Baton Rouge because there was graffiti that said Baton Rouge lives or something. <laughs> um, and I always assumed it took place in Texas because whenever I hear Southern accents, I assume it takes place in Texas because so yeah. many indie filmmakers <laughs> and this is another movie to sort of tie into the uh last two movies we, we talked about is just where the sisters have contrasting personalities oh and god watching them interact is kind of implosive i like here's the one of the amazing things about me is, about this movie to me is any like i'm not saying any other filmmaker but i feel like the easy way to go uh would be to damn one of the sister you know one sister and but to take these four flawed people to be flawed in four deep different directions, and there's no one statement about technology is bad, and there's no one statement about sex, you know random sex is bad, and there's no one statement about being a prude is bad, mm-hmm. you know like or the institution of marriage is failing. Yeah, the institution of marriage is bad, and monogamy is bad. Like there's none of it. Um, it refuses to view them as anything other than person. They're not and. Despite tackling these themes that, again, feel so fucking ahead of their time. Yeah, um, this clearly had an influence on, like, in the company of men. Well, not um, even I'm, – I'm just thinking about just the concepts of internet dating and just, like, the way technology can be used 
to people will use technology to come together, but there's without really acknowledging that there's a barrier. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, he, I, there's the one point where you know Peter Gallagher gets really angry that she did this video, and he's like, "Those tapes could end up anywhere." And I'm thinking to myself, back then, not. Not really. I mean, it <laughs> might show up on some card table in a back alley or whatever. It'll show up it's on much the Spice more poignant Network. now. Yeah. <laughs> it could be on a million different porn websites and you'll just be everywhere. And so it's it's all, it's even more interesting now, kind of. Exactly. Yeah. And um, yeah. don't take any naked pictures of yourself, Patrick. Right. Yeah, too late. Um, but um, no, exactly. But at the same time, there are these themes and these ideas and stuff. But. Never at any point are any of the characters mouthpieces for nope. car- for the screenwriter for you know for Soderbergh. None of them are there to espouse the meaning. None of them have the answers. Even when Annie McDowell is confronting James Spader, she doesn't have the answers he needs. She just knows that where he is isn't where he needs to be. She's not there giving him a big monologue about you got all this around you and that's not helping. You know, like well, she's just curious to know why he's yeah, the she, way he is. She's, she's just, not damning him for it. She's she's seeing that he's making everyone else be the truth, and she wants and she's you know at this point I think she's in love with him because it's something that she's not used to, and it's something he's literally changed her. And, yeah, I like his genuine curiosity towards you know, every single person he comes into contact with. I mean, obviously I, I don't know if it it's there with um, his friendship anymore. Obviously he sort of dismisses it after a while and says, we're, we're not alike. I think John is a liar. And yeah. I think he sees the old version of himself in John and he sort of wants to veer away from that entirely because he's changed. Okay. Let's talk about the fact that Peter Gallagher sees that whole fucking scene, unpl- you know, play out on the videotape. Uh, and his response is, well, at least you didn't fuck her. By the way, I fucked your girlfriend. What do you think about that? Like, <laughs> that's what he walks away with. Because that's all he has. Like, he's a, that is, that is the number one lying. And again, that's this, that's sort of what Andy confronts, uh, James Spader with is the number one lying isn't lying to other people. It's lying to yourself. You know, it's not being honest with yourself. And if he watches that and what he gets out of, of that is to okay. attack, to attack him. Okay, you know, did they or did they not fuck? Like, that's what he was interested in. Like, he is in so much denial and, you know, and yeah. all the way to the end of that scene where he's in his office and he lost the big client and he, the, his boss is furious with him, you know? Like, he's just so much denial. I like his reaction to uh, him finding out what took place. Oh, man, I want to get uh, that apostle of truth, huh? Just oh, yeah. like that whole, that whole little moment of there, there are there are, t- there are tiny moments where the acting, I think the very <laughs> a little, worst. A little dramatic, but. The, the very worst acting moment is when Annie McDowell finds the earring because it, it literally just looks like a like a drama, you know, not necessarily 101, but 102, you know, uh, where it's like, now we can't use words, but you just found out that your husband's cheating on you. And. It feels like very drama school. She wants to make sure you see every thought that goes in her head with her eyes darting back and forth and then getting quiet. You know, like, uh, yeah, totally. I got that vibe to the James Spader destroying the videotape scene. Like oh, yeah. The one where I'm like, oh, he's going to throw a temper tantrum and throws a camera across the room and throws it all in a box, throws it out the door and then walks off the frame. I was like, uh, <laughs> that was the one scene that was like. It was really, just, that was a little over. The top, it was over the top, but it, it I, was justified. You know, I actually I figured he would respond. I have to make a, I have to make a confession. I have 
such a thing for people destroying room scenes. <laughs> it's my favorite scene in Wet Hot American Summer. Wet Hot American Summer, <laughs> Citizen Kane, obviously. There's an amazing part in The Pirate uh, where... Um, the pirate the pirate with uh judy garland and gene why am i always forget names when we're on the show dancer singing in the rain audrey no maybe it wasn't shepherd singing in the rain the The lead of singing in the rain who is the lead of singing oh my god why am i blanking on that andrew isn't it uh Gene Kelly? Gene, Gene Kelly! Ke- <laughs> oh my god! Oh what god, I'm dumb. Yeah, somehow my mind always blanks out names when I need them. But well, Gene- I always think it's Fred Astaire, but I know it's not. Yeah, there's a mo- there's a great moment where Gene Kelly has been pretending to be a famous pirate, and Judy Garland like finds out that he's not the pirate, and she's chasing around the room. I think they might be singing a song, maybe they're not, but as she's chasing around the room, she's literally destroying every goddamn thing in the room, and it is one of the greatest scenes there's something very visceral about seeing actual things being like it's sort of like seeing an animal on screen or seeing nudity on screen where you know it's real and there's there's uh it, there's almost a there's like a weird aspect to it i really um respond to when you see something literally being destroyed whether it's as simple as him breaking the tapes like i really respond to that mm. Well, there's a, lot of, a there's, movie. It's such a movie thing to it do. Is, it yeah, is. It is. hundred percent. And as, especially as you mentioned, like, uh, you know, he doesn't do anything. You know, he just then walks <laughs> off screen. Yeah. But it's also something you can do in real life, and I can demonstrate for you, Patrick, if you like. I can just start destroying everything in your room right no, now. No, please do. Tape it. Okay. Tape yeah. It. Tape oh, it. Oh, tape oh, it. The scene in the stuff where the kid it, like goes. I love that. Smash. <laughs> where you got kid like anarchy in the USA, and he's smashing up the grocery store. That that's another good. Anyway. Yeah. No, like this is definitely um becoming <laughs> one of my favorite movies. Um and definitely one of my favorite Soderbergh movies. I th- I feel like it's a, a really um intimate and realistic sort of portrayal. It's I mean, there there's hints of melodrama, but for the most part I like the way the characters interact. It sort of um gets you very involved in the localized like causes and effects of repression and how it impinges on the lives of everybody involved and how they each respond to it in completely different ways. And I like, I like James Spader's, especially the way he delivers like that moment when Cynthia asks him, uh, so is this how you get off? Yes. Like, yeah, like no pause, nothing. He's just like, he's so self-assured. Like this is he's my, so honest yeah. about everything. But I mean, again, he he doesn't lie, and uh, and that's again, you can tell that's something Cynthia is. Uh, well, you know, originally Cynthia goes there because she wants to have something her sister doesn't want her to have. Yeah. Um, and what I love about this, the way the movie is so clean and so you know almost sparse in the information it gives and stuff is the same way. The second you see the video camera in the trunk, it's like a loaded gun. It's like you know something's going to happen with that. The second Cynthia goes, oh, I can't find my pearl earring. I must have left it someplace. Uh-oh. There's never, first time I saw it, never any doubt what was going to, where that pearl earring is going to, it's such a simp, it's such a, uh, almost a cliche sort of mm-hmm. way to find out that your husband's been cheating on you that, again, it's just setting up these things for, and it, it's doing it without wasting time. And I think that's actually why the drunkard in the bar stands out so much <laughs> is he's the only thing in the movie that has no purpose it's a nice plant it looks like a tablecloth 
That is that is hands down pro- like my favorite <laughs> line in any Soderbergh movie. I fucking die every t- and it's such a, even a like a nice moment where you finally see the sisters are reconnecting. But just nice plant looks so like, was, it's, did, like he, he does you, a callback like he knows he's in a movie and he knows that the only other scene he's been in yeah <laughs> was like a week earlier. Do you live here, man? <laughs> no, he so starts it, with the Brando impression. Oh God, that's, that guy's so funny. I didn't really um, focus on the clothing, but is there um, was there emphasis on characters wearing black and characters wearing white at certain points? Because I just think of it when Andy McDowell finds out about the affair, she takes off her white clothes and then she's stripped down and wearing all black suddenly. I thought. Uh, I I don't think it's I don't think I mean he wears all black and they comment on that yeah and the and Peter Gallagher dresses like in you know ties and suspenders you know like he's a lawyer in in Louisiana I I think she was I don't know what she was stripping off her clothes for really yeah. I don't she, yeah like when she found out that her sister had done the videotape and she acted so shocked on the phone but really she was intrigued. The next scene, like, yeah, she was totally wearing, like, a white sundress in the windowsill, painting her toenails. The next scene, she's wearing about as slutty of an outfit as a character like that would wear. She wore really short jean shorts and, like, a red, a very wispy red tank top. And oh, really? And she was waltzing over to go see James Spader, and that was when I think she, was she wearing recorded black. the video. I'm pretty sure she was wearing black, but I'm not sure. It was... It was like red and mm. jean oh, maybe. shorts. Maybe. Okay, I, I, yeah, I noticed it. But very... speaking of symbolism and stuff, uh, the plants. Uh, mm. Do you? I, that was that's the other thing I can't quite crack. Um, he gives I'm not sure he gives her a plant uh, as a gift when he when he first uh, when Peter Gallagher first when we first see her him at least um, mm-hmm. have sex with Cynthia. He brings her a plant. He wears a he has a plant on his dick in that very infamous scene. You see the little hanger bouncing back and forth. It's very funny. Um, uh, there's plants all around Cynthia's house. Mm-hmm. Um, you think it's just like a sort of representation representation of sexuality and the way that uh, I don't know because the- yeah, I just got it as that's kind of their thing. She yeah. likes plants. He can afford them, and so he brings them over. Okay. Yeah, no, that makes more, and then that makes more I don't sense. That representative of anything else. Okay, I I thought I don't know. I I always feel like that you don't. Keep I meant to listen stuff to the like commentary that. since I brought up Neil Labute. Um, I know he's on the commentary. I didn't get a chance to listen to it, unfortunately, but I like to hear that because I, I I just assume sex lines and videotape had a huge impact on a lot of filmmakers in terms of telling a story with just like you know four characters interacting over a short period of time dealing with something very personal and uh in the company of men like there's definitely moments of peter gallagher's character he could totally be a part of that of that uh other movie which i really really love yeah um but that's unfortunately only a really great neil labute movie there was as far as i'm concerned what did you guys think of the very end I, that was the other one thing I'm still scratching my head about a little bit is the final scene is like Andy McDowell and James Spader sitting on his porch and he she puts her hand in his like they're a couple now and they're just going to live happily ever after together. I thought that was a little weird. Am I, well, I think, am I alone on well, that one? Then the, very, the very last line of dialogue is it looks like it's going to rain. Yeah. I, I feel like it's they – 
have reached a point where they've just changed each other each other so that that's they have to and i don't think it necessarily means happily ever after which is what the, i think it's going to rain Mm-mm. i think it's just what especially no i mean i agree with you okay. <laughs> but I, I mean especially that score too it's uh it's very um haunting i wanted to mention because jim you really like sort of uh ambient you know electronic kind of scores and stuff and i generally hate them absolutely but, love them um I, I think usually I hate them because they mostly just feel like filler. Um, whereas here, because the movie is so tight and and you know so sparse and so character driven, and the score and cuts so at personal, the most appropriate moments. Yeah, too. that the score you know actually feels like it enhances it as opposed to is just carrying you from. I feel like a lot of, I mean, we'll talk about traffic later. I feel like a lot of the score in traffic is just like, well, we need a montage to carry you from one location to the next. So we're going to have some, you know, that's that's what all ambient music sounds to me. Just, I find it a lot more relaxing than that. <laughs> you don't, you, wouldn't you, wouldn't you like to just, I hear, to I hear it as, I hear it as, saying, uh, no, yeah, not wall. Andrew, how do you hear it? <laughs> <laughs> not wall. Ooh, 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 ooh. Yeah. Exactly. That's nice. No, I did. I do it's like the, the same guy who this. did uh, the the music for Drive. Uh huh. So, which is another movie that's so weird and stripped down that it it's uh, another movie I really want to rewatch too. Yeah. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I'm excited to, but I also want to see if I have the same enthusiasm upon repeat viewings. But yeah, no, I, Sex, Lies, and Videotape is a fantastic movie. Definitely. I, yeah, I'm going to get... I feel like if I watch this every few years, I'm going to get something more out of it every time. Well, what helps movies like this is if as long as it's a good character and good stories and well-acted, it's not going to diminish. You know, seeing that magic happen, that scene at the end... That's never gonna. That's not like a joke where once you know the punchline, once you know where it's going, yeah, it's it's fucking magic just watching it happen. And then, I wish I'd watched this before we talked about Cronenberg's Crash. Yeah, because I'd be like, this is this is the movie that kind of got it right. Then you would have really hated Crash. Yeah, <laughs> that, yeah, that was that's your problem, Jim. You don't hate Cronenberg's Crash enough. I can't stand it. It's the only Cronenberg movie I just like. Ugh. I agree with you, and probably not the only one for me, but I agree with you. Cool. Uh, Any final thoughts on uh, Sex, Lies, and Videotape? Loved it. And again, I sincerely thank you. I don't know if I would have rewatched it anytime soon. So thank you guys for making me realize it's fucking awesome. Yeah, well, thank me. Thank you for. I'm we're not ending now, but thank you for being on. <laughs> <laughs> like, all right, all right, Peter. We can handle traffic on our own. Uh, um, no, but speaking of which, uh, we might as well now get into our next movie. We can. Yeah. Um, which, which is, is tra- traffic. <laughs> you don't have to do that. You don't have to do that for everything. Like, we sort of stumbled upon this you're, thing you're where we always say the director's name at the same time for no reason. We don't have to make that the whole thing. No, you're introducing this. You take the. All right. Take traffic. The, take the wheel. <laughs> and a lot of interests in this town FBI, CIA, DEA, ATF, IRS. Right now, they're scared of you. I know everyone that you're going to meet. I know what they want and why. Anything else? No, sir. They brought him to Washington to win a war. Will we get invited to the White House? Well, I don't know about that, honey. None of my friends can freaking believe my dad's actually the drug czar. Ah! 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 
We need to take down one of these cartels. They took her husband to send a message. What is going on? They came into the house. They just took him away. The DEA has got him. Do not discuss anything over the telephone. How am I going to survive this? They apprehended a witness to win their case. We hired drivers with nothing to lose and throw a lot of product at the problem. This has worked for years. I have actual dreams about this. About busting the top people, rich people, my people. <laughs> and they paid an informant to get the truth. In Mexico, law enforcement is entrepreneurial activity. You should feel good about this. I feel like a traitor. But the war they thought they had won. You might want a pencil and a little FaceTime with your daughter. See? Now you see. Let's do some more. Is just beginning. Who does Carl sell to? You should not have any contact with those people. The doll is high impact, pressure molded. It's odorless, undetectable by the dogs, undetectable by anyone. <laughs> I want the principal witness against my husband killed. This winter, we're going after their top guys. Your government surrendered this war a long time ago. The director of Aaron Brockovich and Out of Sight. I have a job for you, but I don't have much time. Takes you beyond the slogans. Where the hell are the drugs? That's a death sentence. And into the depths of an underworld. You worry about getting me what I want. I worry about myself. Where no one... Don't do this vigilante thing. ...gets away clean. In the year 2000, Steven Soderbergh released two films to great critical acclaim and award season buzz. One was Aaron Brockovich, an audience pleaser about a spunky former beauty queen taking on big business. But the other film, which was actually decent, was Traffic, a wide-scoping take on, on the war on drugs. Boasting an all-star cast including Catherine Zeta-Jones, Michael Douglas, Benicio Del Toro, and Topher Grace. Yes, they got Topher Grace. I don't know how they got him, but he was available. Uh, (laughs) That's my intro to Traffic. You like it? I did very much. So what are your thoughts? Oh, man. I I like a lot about this movie, um, uh, individual moments, but to zero fault of this movie, it's not the movie's fault at all. So much of it is just rendered irrelevant by the fact that it exists in the same universe as The Wire, which, like, the same way there's a scene in Traffic in which uh, Michael Douglas, the new drug czar, uh, is talking to Border Patrol, and and he's talking about, you know, what their options are to fight, you know, drugs coming across the border, and they go, oh, well, our our budgets can't even come close. Our budgets can't even compare. Um, mm-hmm. we, we can't even come close to the drug cartels. And in that same way, there's no way a single feature film, even at two and a half hours could ever reach, uh, you know, an HBO series with five seasons, you know, uh, and this is the kind of movie, uh, you know, this is the kind of subject matter where the, the deeper you go and the wider you go, the more interesting it gets. And that's, you know, a large part of why traffic is so much more interesting than other movies with DEA agents or, but I like watching this the whole time i was i just could not stop thinking like this isn't like the wire did this already <laughs> not already though because the wire came after but um, better no but this is there's a lot of interesting things he does so that sort of um unfortunate turn of events aside um uh, i like how uh, for the most part, I like how he establishes different locations with different, you know, uh, film stocks and different, you know, filters. Uh, color filters and everything. Yeah. Um, I think he maybe relies a little too hard on, like, I, I literally, I literally think like the opening shots in, uh, DC, like just, they look like they're just shot through blue jello. Like it's way too blue, but I like that very quickly you, he establishes a shorthand, where he's able to go 
back and forth between these huge stories with these characters who almost none of them meet. Um, and he's able to quickly go back and forth between Mexico and, you know, LA and DC. And he's not, and there's never any confusion about what's happening, uh, which is a very impressive feat. Um, and of course, I think all the individual stories are good, uh, except for Erica Christensen, which we'll talk about later, I think. Sure. But for the most part, I really do enjoy this movie. Um, I just think it has sort of the unfortunate, uh, luck to, uh, exist in the same world as The Wire. Yeah, no, I, uh, if I were to stick to my initial reaction when I first saw it in 2000, then it could very well be in my top five favorite Soderbergh films. Um, I really, really liked it the first time I saw it. I, I certainly, um, felt like it had relevant things to say at a time when, you know, I obviously knew about, you know, the, the, the war on drugs as being this exercise in futility to, to a, a large degree. Um, and I still admire his ambition to approach this uh, story on both a macro level and a micro level. And, and you know, upon a third viewing, I had, I had a different response. Like, it could just stem from either seeing other films, reading other essays, uh, or like you said, seeing at least one season of The Wire and sort of admiring that a lot more. Uh, but I've become a little bit indifferent, not completely, but just as I mentioned um, earlier. But I, I'm not, I don't know what's happening, at least to to my taste, but I'm kind of not enjoying the multi-narrative style of filmmaking. The the uh, I just feel like some characters get sidetracked, or at least I become really invested in one uh, subplot, and then we have to go to a more, less interesting subplot. Not- not not to distract you or get you sidetracked into another movie, but how did you feel about Contagion? I liked it. I mean, but again, there were a couple of things I think could have been nixed from that and made a stronger, tighter movie, including uh-huh. the Marianne Cotillard. Yeah, subplot. no, I agree about that one. But um, at a basic level of how entertained I am by this movie, I think it still works. Um, in terms of the politics and ideas I think it's meant to elaborate on, I, st- I, I, I feel a little dissatisfied that it approaches this subject on a very surface level. Like, I don't think it gets as in-depth as I would like, especially with the um, Erica Christensen and Michael Douglas subplot. I, I'm less um, invested in that storyline because I find a lot of it kind of simplistic and implausible and nothing... Like, I've seen much more intense and accurate portrayals of that um you know, the contrast there between him trying to fix everything and, you know, the daughter turns out to be a victim of uh, of addiction as well and him trying to control that at the same time uphold his uh, his ethics and, and, and his job, essentially. Um, but I don't know. I, I feel like still the, the characters are really strong. I think there's at times like the depth isn't there for me. It's a very good entertaining movie. Um, I just feel like there needs to be a little bit more harsh criticism about how we're trying to control the inflow of drugs across the border. I feel like the ending is especially kind of candy coated and it's, um, there shouldn't be a happy ending to the struggles that we're facing when it comes to something like this. And that's sort of, um, I wouldn't say naivete, but I, I, I just feel like it's not realistic enough. Um, but again, they're they're a great performances. 
Um, I, I do like the contrasting styles throughout each storyline. I, I, I think the, like the tobacco filter and the Mexican subplot's really cool. Um, I like his style. I think it's all there. You have to admire the fact that he shot and edited. This is one of those movies where he did pretty much everything he could do. And, you know, he definitely won the Best Director Award because he's an amazing director. And uh, this movie is representative of that. But as time has gone on, this is something that is not hold, held up as strongly for me, despite me still finding a lot to admire about it. Yeah. Andrew? We're so on the same page. Oh, this movie. Yeah. (laughs) Like Jim said, you know, maybe six years ago, this might, I would have said, this is probably my favorite Steven Soderbergh movie. Um, and I still like it a lot. There's so much to love about this movie, but yeah, it's just, I don't think it's like I haven't seen The Wire and I don't I don't even think it's irrelevant anymore or anything like that. I just think that once it says what it wants to say, I'm not too interested in rehashing it over and over. So, yeah, the rewatch value, I just seems to slowly diminish like the I mean, the thrust of the film is the war against drugs is futile. And it says that over and over and over again in so many different scenes and in so many different ways um, that like I got the message now and there's almost nothing really to dig into anymore substance wise once you get past that. Yeah, Like Jim said, it's, it's a, it's very surface. It doesn't really go in. There's, there is, you know, but as surface entertainment, I think it still works. Like I still think they're, Lots, but that's certainly not it was what it was sold as or acclaimed as when it came out. Surface, right. it was, you know, and I, I, I kind of feel bad saying that. Yeah, you know, like <laughs> I, it's because it's such a quality film. Yeah, uh, have you seen the, the Have you time. seen the miniseries, the British miniseries? No, hmm. I need no. to see that too because I'm very curious. Everybody says it's, you know, it expands on all the ideas a lot more clearly well, and strongly. Again, I mean, you got more time. This, yeah, this but. sort of epic reaching thing, you, you know, you need, you know, the more time you have, you have an advantage. And, sure. Um, I, one thing I, I, I want to address my main problem now. Um, actually, when I, first I want to address something Jim said about the happy endings, because that's actually something I said. And then I really thought about it and the, there's okay. Actually, I gotta I gotta approach both of them because um, first off, the face of drug addiction in this movie is an upper class white girl, um, which is just completely intellectually just like flat out like a lie. That's not if you're rep- if you're claiming to represent the story of drugs in America, that can't be what you see. You know, to me, that the only possible reason to have an upper class white girl who is, by the way. Goes from like trying cocaine to freebasing <laughs> to have like being a crack whore for free for heroin. Like, she goes from that within the span of like two weeks or so. Like, yeah, I didn't buy that, but but like it's not honest and it's not it's not helpful. But the only reason I can see to do that is because you want to get white America's attention. And if they just see a bunch of you know black people in the ghetto who who their entire neighborhood has been devastated by drugs. They're just going to go, Oh yeah, well that's just a bunch of junkies. You know, you need to hit them where it hurts. So let's get the white girl hooked. But, and then, and of course now when I looked back at the ending, my initial thought, because I already had this sort of bad, Oh, he was maybe, I mean, he didn't write the script and that's something I find interesting about Soderbergh is someone who's such a, 
you know, not even to get to auteur theory or whatever, but has such a strong voice and a vision. He very rarely writes his own, you know, material. Um, but so he didn't write the script, so I can't blame it on him. But the whole thing feels like it's an it's an angle to get awards, to get the broadest kind of notice and acclaim, as opposed to being the most honest. Um, and that poisoned the way I looked at the ending because. I was like, okay, so then the ending, every character is happy, not happy, but every character has a victory. Um, Benicio Del Toro escapes with his life and gets the baseball park for the kids. Mm -hmm. Um, And Michael and the drug addict, she's in rehab. And Michael Douglas doesn't do the fake thing. Um, And Don Cheadle gets to bug that guy, uh, Catherine Zeta-Jones' husband. Yeah. And he's smiling. Yeah, and um, (laughs) but at the same time... Uh, I think that those endings are ironic that the only way to have a happy ending in it, in a movie about the war on drugs is to disengage from the war on drugs. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause I mean, I think it's pretty spelled out in not one, but two uh, speeches by uh, Miguel Ferreira that nothing Don Cheadle does means anything. Um, so his victory yeah. isn't a victory. It's it's just more spinning his wheels. And Benicio Del Toro disengaged from the whole thing because there was no way for him to actually do any good. Um, and Michael Douglas quit his job because there's no way that he can do any good, you know? Uh, so I think it's almost kind of sly and ironic that uh, that all of these happy endings are at the expense of the actual war on drugs, which is not betraying the message. But because it's already portraying the face of addiction as this white upper-class girl. You're sort of suspicious of its motivations and you're really, nice. so when I first threw it, I was suspicious and I thought, Oh, it's doing this cause it doesn't want to bum the audience out. Um, but I wouldn't necessarily call it all happy endings when you really think about it. Hmm. Well, is it, is it just trying to win over the audience and just be happy endings, or is it, is it actually saying something? No, that's what right I'm saying. Wrong? I mean, I think it's saying, the battle may be futile, but we should continue fighting it, and those small victories do mean something. I don't yeah, think those it small is. personal victories that each character gets to have in their own I don't way. Think it is. I don't think those victories do mean something, though. I don't think – when you look at the idea that um, – Maybe not on a macro level, but certainly for the individual. The baseball park, I mean, that's well, a small victory. That could be a big thing in – I don't know. I'm kind of reaching at straws. Well, but- baseball is the national pastime, just like drugs. <laughs> there you <laughs> go. Baseball is the opiate of the masses, man. Uh, um, maybe he did, just by getting lights in the baseball park, maybe he did save one kid's future or something. I, I don't know. I think good, that's, that's what a good kind of the saying is it's worth it, – the battles are worth fighting even if in the end it's futile. But then the I – just, I just feel like that's still not – like because it – I need to look like the only way this movie works to me is if you look at it only from the characters perspectives, because as a wide scale portrayal of the war on drugs, it isn't. There's a lot missing out. There's nothing on the street level Um, with the the weirdest kind of grossest part to me is the black drug dealer who Uh. is as much of it as anyone in the movie is portrayed as this sort of one note evil guy Mm -hmm. when it's like. Then how come the person above him is able is allowed to have dimensions, and how come every other person, but on the street level, they're sort of still portrayed as, you know, as a one note kind of yeah, I'm gonna fuck you, girl, and yeah, and like what the fuck, I'm gonna kill you, fuck your daughter, like it, it's kind of 
gross. I'm not saying racist because it's not like he's the only portrayal of black, you know, people in the movie. But or you know, and of you know, right. there's there's heroic Latinos in this movie. There's heroic black people in this movie. There's it's just simplistic. I mean, a lot it's of simplistic, and it's not being again, it's not being honest. Um, and so I think you have to look at it just from these how these three uh, or I guess four characters um, look at the drug, you know. And how they approach it, um, as opposed to trying to look at it as um, a portrayal of the entire. Dis- Even though you know the main thing gets praised for is its scope, that's not actually, I think, its strength. Um, mm, no, I mean, I again, I think I admire. But again, his I think I might just be biased it. because that is what the wire does. <laughs> well, yeah, it does it more effectively, but you have to also consider we have a lot more time to spend with those. Right. Characters. No, no. That, and that's what I've said. Yeah. But it's, I would definitely prefer. I that. don't think, I don't necessarily think that is what traffic is going for. Um, and I think that was what I assumed it was going for because that's all I heard about it is, Oh, it has such breadth and such mm-hmm. you know, it's, um, but I don't think that's actually, I think it's more about the way these characters relate to the war on drugs. And I do as, as simplistic as, Michael Douglas's storyline is I really do like how the way he refuses to acknowledge his daughter um he like you're on drugs and she goes no I'm not I promise and then you go I think she's lying to us it's like well then why didn't you fucking keep her there yeah until she fucking told you the truth you know and it's like okay well I gotta get this expunged and the guy goes and John Slattery from Mad Men goes why aren't how come you don't know what your own daughter's doing and it's it's exactly exactly what he's yeah. doing with, you know, exactly what America's drug policy is, is you're not acknowledging the actual problem. You're throwing things at it because you don't want to acknowledge what the actual problem is, you know? Well, we're losing the war because the strategies themselves aren't working and we're not talking about it and we're not thinking we're, of af- Yeah, everyone's afraid to talk about it and that's – and that is – And well, Michael Douglas is afraid to talk to her, his daughter yeah. to find out the truth. Or they're talking about the wrong things. Like one of my favorite scenes, again, it's just addressing this futile theme, um, is like he's just been appointed the, the drug czar and he has to go to this like cocktail party and it's just full of special interest oh, groups yeah. and lobbyists mm-hmm. and, and congressmen and they're all telling him, this is what you should focus on. No, this is what you should focus on. Well, if you focus on this, you'll get money from us. And like instantly it's a whirlwind. And so yeah. – it's uh, that's the kind of stuff I do find interesting about the movie is like you said it's it's a character right. study more maybe than it is or at least that's the way if you want to get enjoyment of the movie that's the way you should approach it rather than worrying about the message or what it is but look at the way Michael Douglas like look at his job look what yeah. he has to deal with how does he deal with it um I, I found those when he's on the plane and he asks all his you know, uh, advisors and stuff. This is the moment you guys have 20 minutes. Think outside the box. Give me any new ideas. And everybody's it's just silent. silent. Oh like, God. I-, I love those scenes. That, that's and, a great and, that's, and what's great is Soderbergh is still such a good filmmaker that e- even if I don't think the piece necessarily, 
you know, works 100 yeah. percent as the whole. Their individual scenes. I mean, clearly, in my mind, at least, the greatest scene in the movie is the assassin being assassinated. Like, if you li- if you listen carefully, you can actually hear Brian De Palma jerking off because <laughs> you have like four levels. You like at the same time, you know that Catherine Zeta Jones is on the phone declaring this to happen. You see the sniper. You see the you see the other assassin. You see his target. Mm-hmm. You see like it is, and it is not like over the top. You know, it's it's not crazy camera angles, but it's such a fucking clear image of, like, so many different layers of what's going on and these people having no idea what is happening right now, right next to them. And it's such a perfect encapsulation of the movie as a whole. And it's and I, I do think it kind of gilds the lily the way, the way that uh, Luis Guzman runs into the car that explodes. But I but it's still it's such a great moment and the fact that the assassin who gets assassinated then gets shot by the DEA agents because <laughs> um, all they heard was a shot and they're just re- like no one knows what the fuck is going on um, it's such an amazing moment and it's just pure fucking filmmaking bravado and it's oh it's so that's good that's something Soderbergh brings to everything practically and that's something I really admire um, I mean, yeah, even- and he, he brought it up too um like it was unfortunately only like a ten minute interview I heard on um, like a, an NPR interview that he gave where he said that all those lobbyists, all the, they're all real. They're they're not actors, yeah. and he wanted to get that. He just he would throw a lobbyist in there and say, "Talk to Michael." He's just been he wanted that organic sort of documentary approach. Right. And was he this? Said, yeah, I like that. Was this? This is right before K Street, or this right a little bit so. before? Or? I think it is. I don't know when K Street, but that's a similar which thing I haven't where- seen. Neither have I, but I know that the premise is it takes place in D.C. and it has a lot of real people and mm-hmm. it's largely improvised. And um, mm, I definitely want to check that out. Yeah, but I mean, and that's something that Steven Soderbergh is really capable of uh, in such a way that, you know, we're going to be talking about the Limey later. I think almost when he strips things down, that's almost playing against his strengths because he's so good at. Like, when all of the plan is happening in Ocean's Eleven, and you just see every facet of it coming together, and there's no, and never any visual confusion, when you're watching that movie, and that, this movie, and that scene where the assassin is being assassinated, and everyone knows, I have no idea what's going on, you always have a perfect idea of what's going on. Sex Lies and Videotape, the way her, you know, it cuts between her and Peter Gallagher and James Spader at the opening, he's very capable of making multiple things happening at once, and... Uh, which is not an easy thing to do, and it's something I think, you know, a lot of filmmakers actually try to stay away from just because it's mm-hmm. you don't because it's too easy to get lost. And but that's like one of his key strengths, I feel. Um, yeah, no, he's able to pull it off quite well in this movie too. But um, in something like Syriana, I completely, I was like confused. I remember, yeah, being that's really... a great example of a movie that tries to do this similar thing but completely fails. Yeah, and it, it totally. talks about the oil crisis and had no impact on me whatsoever. Yeah, and well, it, it's, it tries to. You can feel like it's trying to be traffic. I believe they're and, the same. It's direct, so it's so writer. nonsensical and so hard. So many characters that you don't you're unable to follow. And here it's just like. It's not just the the blue filter and the yellow filter for the locations, but you you general, general, genuinely uh, have a feeling for all these characters. Like uh, pretty much instantly, you're on board with whatever 
whatever they have to deal with. And when you come back to them, you know exactly where they fit into the story. And that's tricky with such a huge cast like this. Yeah. And you yeah. know, talking about cartels and the Obregon brothers and this guy and that guy, it makes sense in traffic. There's mm-hmm. something in Syriana. There's so many name drops and you're like, who, the, what the fuck are they talking about? It is really remarkable that you're able to get a grasp of the political machinations in Mexico when that's let probably less than a third of the movie and you still have a perfect grasp of it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I think, I think a big help actually in those kinds of things is, uh, if you see the name subtitled, it's easier to remember them if, as opposed to if they're just spoken. Right. True. Uh, but it's, but it is like, it is something that he's very talented at and that's, why traffic works as well as it does, even if uh, as a criticism as the war on drugs, it's a little light, even if, you know, as uh, as a drama, there's a lot of I'm not exactly sure if I even buy Catherine Zeta Jones is like she literally goes from completely helpless to like her her transition from completely helpless to kill him, kill him now, like is again she if all she's looking to do is protect her family and cuz she has no money and she has the number one thing that the government would ever want which is the names and addresses and phone numbers of every person that like and she's like and she's helpless but her response instead is to just call one of the people instead of Sometimes people don't think rationally. No, we're well, we gonna get up into our Facebook we're discussion. Not, yeah, yeah. Me and me and Jim were arguing about season the season four finale of Breaking Bad, which we won't spoil, <laughs> but I think it's bullshit. Yeah, well. <laughs> Speaking of drug cartels, true. Um, no, but I mean, I but I, no, I, but I my point that. is, and even though the movie is two and a half hours long, and it's a very long movie, it does it not feel, feel it. like it. No, um, no. I, I mean, uh, we said that it's. As a whole, the message and everything, it just doesn't work. At the same time, I can go through this movie scene by scene and just go, that's awesome. That's awesome. Oh, that's uh, awesome. Everything. Don Chadle Every and Luis Guzman love sting it. on Jose Ferreira's and then going into the ball pit. And <laughs> yeah, oh, that's yeah. great. All of that is great. Um, yeah, I love the kids going to the, like, going to the motel and just the way they interact. Yeah. Um, Topher Grace is great. This little speech that he gives Michael Douglas. Oh, Topher Grace gives Michael Douglas. That's a beautiful um, moment of levity. It's just scene after scene of awesomeness. Even if the whole thing doesn't add up to a hill of beans. Though um, I, I will, I will say the speech he gives Michael Douglas. You, J- Jim, you said it's a great <laughs> moment of levity. I but it is, li- it is. I know, and it is. It is played for comedy. It is literally the only moment in which the street level of drugs is given any consideration in the movie, which again plays to a bit my problem with the way it's portrayed. But, but no, Topher Grace is like really good in, I because it does take a certain kind of actor to be you know to rid yourself of being self-conscious to be a little ass and to he's ferris bueller yeah and uh, yeah he's like the real <laughs> version of ferris bueller uh where he's just sort of um on drugs <laughs> yeah or he's just on on drugs and he he's just very i can't think of the word but he's he he thinks he he's owed something and yeah um that's actually yeah we, we won't get into ferris bueller now i think we're gonna probably gonna talk about john hughes sometime next year oh boy um but uh He's John Ferris Bueller is the the very portrait of entitlement, but no, it takes a certain kind of actor, and again, he does this in Ocean's Eleven, where to allow yourself to be realistically dumb, because there is 
the way, especially now. And I remember there was like a brief window where people were like, oh, it's cool that they have a sense of humor about themselves. But now it's every single fucking actor shows up on Entourage and is like, oh, I'm a fucking asshole. And it's like, oh, isn't that funny that John Stamos is pretending that he's racist because he's uh, John, you know. It worked for Kate Winslet on the extras when she said, oh, I had to do is, you know, play a character. I, I know. I, I, I consider that another one where it's like, all right, we get it. They're, I think they're lovable funny. people acting not lovable. It's funny. I think, I think extras is funny. I'm just yeah. saying, I'm just saying it takes – uh, you know, and at this point where he still had, he wasn't a joke. He wasn't parodying parody. Like this is before Tad Hamilton. So oh, God. His, his film career had yet to peak. Um, and uh, he was, but yeah, he's being a little snot, but he's being a snot in the way that is completely, if you ever hung out with any stoners or anything um, oh, God, who yeah. think that they're brilliant, like, Oh my God, that whole scene in the, in the uh, living room where they're just talking about, where him and Eric Christensen are talking about, like, I just feel like we're engaging in... <laughs> yeah. like the That's tr- so realistic to me. That part is very realistic. And it's... Like, but once it gets into her uh, dissension, into addiction, doesn't work as well. No. But for me. Let's, I'd like to... What do you think about her as an actress? Because I thought she was just awesome in this movie, and I was like, there's the next like big... Star. There's the next Michelle Williams or whatever, and mm. then she just became nothing. She, became she was in a couple swim like direct to DVD stuff, and swim but I thought she was fantastic in this film. Carly, Carly saw every bad. My girlfriend Carly, she saw every bad PG thirteen movie that came out within like a seven year period, like from two thousand to two thousand seven. So she was very familiar with Erica Christensen because she was like, "Oh, you mean from Swim Fan and the Score and MTV's <laughs> yeah. version of Wuthering Heights?" <laughs> like, oh my god! Uh, I don't think she's that great in it. I mean, really? Granted, she is only really needs to play one note, but I think the only moment I really like her is um, when uh, D- Michael Douglas finally finds the drugs in the bathroom, and she's sort of—I mean, I guess she's sort of amping up the "I'm crazy, high on drugs" or whatever. But I. Th- I like her in that moment for sure. I like I like the smaller scenes. Yeah. I think the smaller scenes between her and Topher are good. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the scenes where she's running away and the scenes where I I, I mean I, I guess the this, smaller scenes between her and Topher are mostly the only scenes in which she has dialogue. So yeah, I mean she's not in it that much. Yeah. But like, so you, the, you no, I guess I guess it's, I guess it's good. I guess I guess she's fine. Yeah, where she first does the the cocaine or crack or whatever. Uh, I think um, it's free basing heroin, granted, but I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, at now maybe twelve years later, you look at it and go, eh, "It's a little whatever." We've seen it a million times, but when I first saw that and she does that hit and then lays back and then that just that one tear comes down and she spaces out, I remember just being that well, this tear. Wow. That this... tear had to be added by a crew member. They're like that tear felt. It could she, be. It totally could be. <laughs> like I felt, I saw the tear, and I'm like, all right, she had a little single tear coming out because it's so great. Or maybe David Fincher showed up and <laughs> added it digitally, like yeah. digital breath. Oh man, and I think that's how it's looked at now. But I, yeah. in 2000, oh. when I saw this in the theater, I was like, oh, you gotta fuck. understand. Yeah, I know, I understand. They There's... really pulled off, and maybe it's not her. Maybe it's just a testament to Soderbergh. Like, wow, they really pulled off. What it's like, to, you know what? God, that looks really like she's really in fantasy world. Yeah. Maybe I want to try and that. And she's not it's a and, believable moment. But you have to understand, yeah. this came out the same year as Requiem for a Dream, and that movie fucking. <laughs> you annihil- want to talk about? You want to talk about histrionics? <laughs> that movie fucking annihilated me, and I. <laughs> oh god, that movie's like, brutal. 
It is. I, I, and I, I, I mean, love it for it's, how it's brutal funny. It is. It's, it's funny because way, yeah. it's funny because Requiem for a Dream is you know we talk about how kind of the single tier and we talk about oh yeah she's high and she's you know Requiem for a Dream is that taken to eleven but mm-hmm. because that movie is so committed to being out there it's aged wet, better I think yeah than this movie which is <clears throat> ostensibly supposed to be very down to earth and realistic and all handheld and very gritty you know. Uh, and I think, yeah, I don't know. I think she's fine. I don't think she's, I definitely don't think she's bad in this movie. And, uh, again, Soderbergh has, Soderbergh is one of the, Soderbergh's actually, I think one of the few, uh, I think it's actually him and Tarantino who are just really fucking good with actors, but also Mm -hmm. are obsessed with film. I think often the, the kind of directors who are obsessed with film and are film nerds, they don't know what to do with humans because uh, they, they just have a concept of the art in their mind. Um, but Soderbergh's really good with actors. I mean, Jennifer Lopez and Out of Sight, like, that's Jennifer Lopez, <laughs> you yeah. know? We should, uh, yeah, why don't we just transition over yeah. to Out of Sight because that's a great film. Uh, yeah, and actually, what's funny is I learned to respect the traffic. A l- I, f- I like traffic more than I thought I did. Just I learned just now. Mm-hmm. That uh, I, when I was looking back, I'm like, no, there's a lot more I like about this than I uh, originally was giving it credit for. Um, so yeah, traffic's fine. It's uh, but it it hasn't aged as well as some of his other films. Agreed. And totally. One of them being Out of Sight. Oh really? Oh oh no 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 yeah. Oh, yeah. Out of Sight's aged. Out of Sight is aged great. No, absolutely. I, I mistake. I'm mistaking what you're saying. Out of Sight blew me away because I was just fully ready for Get Shorty and. <laughs> That fucking seduction scene in I the was bar. Fully, I was fully ready for Jackie Brown because no. it came out a year after Jackie Brown. Yeah, but it's not Jackie. It's, it's the same author. Yeah, Elmore but Leonard. it's not the same director. I think everything about Jackie Brown, like Elmer Leonard, and even Michael Keaton shows up from, as the same. Character. Well, yeah, but I mean, it's not the same. You know, I know it's not. It, it's not the ex- same movie, but I think you know the same source material sort of had me prepared for. You know something more low key, which it is for the most part. Well, I see. I well, I think I think didn't get Shorty come out in like ninety five or something. Yeah, and that's that's the same writer as well. Yes, and it's and that's what I was expecting. I think, All different. Directors. I think Sonnet. I think Sonnefeld though was involved with Out of Sight for a while, um, and <laughs> might even be still like might have have a producer credit or something. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he ended up passing on it towards the end and. Uh, Soderbergh came on kind of late, but I love Out of Sight. I mean, uh, you know, you can talk about. I think I think Ocean's Eleven is probably the best example of this. But you know, there is a reason movie stars are movie stars, and it's it's just great to watch George Clooney do anything. Um, even <laughs> yeah. back, you know, even back then before he was re- widely recon- recognized as you know one of the great great American movie stars. Um, I had a good feeling about him from the get go, man. Even yeah. even with From Dusk Till Dawn. See, like, from, I think he's good in that. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, no, I think he's good in that. Go ahead, sure. Andrew. I didn't say anything, but oh, I'll, I'll I, chime in. Yeah. I think George Clooney is the one of only two, maybe three actors. I'll go to whatever movie he's in. I don't need yeah. to see a trailer. I don't care who's directing it. If George Clooney's in the movie, I'm going, and there's a 95% chance it's going to be really good. Yeah. Or he had, there's not even, he's going to be really good for sure. Yeah. Definitely. Um, yeah, and out of sight, but out of sight blew me away at how sort of low key and how character driven it is. Yeah, we spend I, a lot of time I in always, that uh, trunk. Yeah, because I, I always 
sort of lumped it in, and I before I'd seen it, I'd lumped it in with all the other post Pulp Fiction kind of slick movies, which is you know where all the why Get Shorty and all these other Elmore Leonard movies were being adapted is mm-hmm. because of Pulp Fiction and the debt that Pulp Fiction led um, had to Elmore Leonard. But um, so I was expecting it to be slick, but. No, that scene in the trunk is great, and then that seduction scene at the bar oh, is incredible. It's probably my my favorite. It's ever. It's of any of any romantic mm-hmm. moment. That's just such a great. Like I don't believe. I think one of the most laziest storytelling devices is love at first sight, um, and I really do believe it in this movie. Yeah, absolutely. There's so many. Mm-hmm. Uh, phenomenal uh character moments and character interactions i mean you have uh like just even a, a you know a guy who shows up once in a while like steve zahn makes an indelible impression because oh, i love so good love him and i get it you guys are like cynical <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean the whole movie is it's borderlines on a comedy it's yeah. actiony and drama-y, but it's like you've got Steve Zahn and Michael Keaton is hilarious. I, anytime Dennis Farina shows his face in anything, he's pretty funny. Yeah. Um, I think this whole movie is essentially a comedy. Yeah. No, I would agree. It's a it's a romantic comedy in yeah. which the two two uh, partners are on opposite sides of the law. Um, though, to its credit, it has that scene where um, Steve Zahn has to go murder that drug dealer in Detroit and it's kind of gets dark and mm-hmm. it doesn't feel completely out of place. It, it, it did throw me for a little bit for a loop. Um, you know, and the out of sights, uh, sort of, it's, it's more of, I love Soderbergh. Um, I love, you know, movies from the seventies and I lo- the things that Soderbergh likes about the way those movies look. I also like, yeah. I like the lens flares. I like the zooms. Uh, there's a wonderful zoom in uh, Out of Sight. Where... Or the freeze frame moments. I like those a lot. Even just at the very beginning when he throws this tie. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. Like that, We brought that up when we talked about Dario Argento. There's those uh, stylistic f- throwbacks that really complement the movie. Though Dario Argento wasn't a throwback. He was just well, going. I, <laughs> yeah. But in this movie. Yeah, but... um. Uh, he has. I like his tendency. Whenever there's a like a scene indoors, the window is always completely blasted out, like it's overexposed. Mm. You can never see out of windows. Um, I know. I'm out I of sight. He's a big a proponent of, of natural lighting. Well, especially emotion. later on. Yeah. Um, I I think this was before he really got into that. But uh, no. Yeah, I mean, and he's he's so good at like Soderbergh can do so much and really using color and light to amplify sort of the tone of the whole film. Mm-hmm. Like he's, he can do anything. So oceans 11 is super glitzy and glossy. And this one, you know, being how lighthearted really it is, it's also really bright and pretty and colorful and fun. Like you mentioned that the, that bar scene, it's gorgeous and it's yeah. so glamorous, you know, like they yeah. make this, this, underworld of gangsters and ex-cons and dirty hairy type cops and they make it glamorous uh it's it's awesome but then you know he'll turn around and do uh you know full frontal or something where it's really kind of gray and grainy and you know yeah well there's something to be said i i heard on another podcast where it's not something i agree with but uh somebody criticized soderbergh 
of, as being a dabbler who never really settles, you know, and kind of hones his strengths and he just tries out a lot of different things without really, you know, settling down. Okay, this is my strength, like something out of sight where everything sort of comes together. All all elements I, work. I, I mean, I will go ahead on record in saying there's a lot of Soderbergh experiments that I don't think really work. You know, yeah. I don't. I don't think Full Frontal works. No, 100 percent of the movie. It has great parts of it. I don't like Bubble very much at all. You know, yeah, it's okay. I'm not crazy about it, but again, it's it's almost like just the experiment itself. I admire more than the end product. No, but that's what I was about to say. Is like I actually realized recently, my favorite director is no longer Woody Allen. It's Robert Altman. And, oh, it's changed. Huh? Yeah, 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 yeah. And and mm. one of the things I love about Robert Altman is that he'll just He'll do everything. Um, I mean, Steven Soderbergh, he'll go and – we talked a little bit about John Carpenter and the, and the idea of a journeyman director. Steven Soderbergh always leaves his stamp on things, you know. Um, and, but His Terrence stamp? Yeah, he'll leave, he'll leave his Terrence stamp on things. But and, and then Robert Altman will not just leave his stamp on things. He'll turn genres into – you know, it's like, am I doing a Western? No, I'm doing McCabe and Mrs. Miller. You know, am I doing a noir <laughs> movie? No, I'm doing The Long Goodbye. You know, am I doing Popeye? Am I doing a silly kids comedy? No, it's like a weird Altman version of Popeye where all of the jokes seem to exist in too much space. (laughs) But I like that about directors who are willing to take chances, you know, and and aren't afraid to embrace their weird side and see what will happen. And that's that's one of the things I respect and love about Soderbergh, even if I don't love all of his movies, you know? So do you think a failed experiment is still interesting? Absolutely. And yeah. the great thing about Soderbergh is, um, I mean, I don't think, we want to talk about The Good German. I don't think The Good German is a failed experiment at all. I haven't seen that yet, and I But need to. I will say that, other than The Good German, all of his experiments are pretty cheap. Like, he doesn't spend a lot on a... <sighs> it's interesting. Yeah, I mean... W- that uh, the whoever that you were reading from that you read online or whatever, in all in other cases other than Soderbergh, I'd actually be maybe inclined to agree. Yeah. If he was dabbling and trying all these different things and none of it worked, then I would say you know go back to the one thing you did that was awesome. But in Soderbergh's case, at least in my opinion, I I really do like all of his experiments. I mean they're not necessarily amazing, but. For me, they're almost always positive experiences. I, I do like Bubble. I do like Full Frontal. Um, I think The Good German is fantastic. I was. I, mean, I, I, do want to, on, I want to talk about The Good German because it I haven't is seen it, pissed I, on and it is sort of looked on as, oh, well, you know, he, he went outside of his zone. He couldn't make it work. I was blown away that that movie didn't feel like just an empty exercise in style. The not only is the story intriguing, the characters are intriguing, the performances are good, and it almost like it adds to it. Um, the style it's not just for its own sake. It's not less. It's not just let me see if I can do a movie in the forties. Wouldn't that be fun if I could? It enhances the story, which I think is already good. Now, I had trouble yes. following it, but I had trouble following all noir movies. I think the the plots of noirs being hard to follow is is kind of a tradition, you know. It's like complaining that slasher movies are ex- excessively violent. It's like, well, that's that's what they are. Um, yeah, and not to not to say that Soderbergh has a big head. I mean, maybe he does, but I yeah, I feel like he didn't go into the good German saying, "Let's see if we can do this." He went into the movie going, "I'm going to make a awesome 
film noir picture and with great locales and you're going to bring in amazing actors to make sure it happens and it's fascinating watching George Clooney and Tobey Maguire play the non-method acting style yeah um you know this is jim do you know what the good german like what it is yeah pretty much it's like just just a post-world war ii um george clooney plays an officer in in post-world war ii germany where all the the alliances or whatever are sort of taking pieces of the pie so to speak so you know the russians are looking for uh, top scientists. Uh, the Americans want to split up the land just so. And George Clooney's really only there. He's he's looking for somebody. Um, and it's played out as though it were actually made in the late 40s if, or 50s. If and, in the 40s you could have violence and and swearing. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It's but the way the actors play it is so like caricature like plastic but it's so deliberate and well, i think people I, that's cool i hate when i see people say oh the acting is terrible no it's not it's amazing kate blanchett acting purposely acting sort of plasticky or that 40s style of acting is amazing i think people who, she's good at that who go, that oh good. the acting is bad like i'm like well what do you think about the third man? Like, have you seen any other post World War II movies from right. that era? Like, are are you condescending those movies? Are you pretending that they're not bad acting? Like, but you actually think they are? Like, I don't think they the, the acting in that movie is bad any any more than the acting in Maltese Falcon is bad. It's different. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, but it's I would effective agree with that. and it and it fits the story. Um, and I like like I found the whole story intriguing. I found that world intriguing. Um, it's it feels. Uh, I remember, I remember actually getting shit for this because I, I it's a because it, let's face it, it's a horrible movie. But I, I said the Black Dahlia is one of the only movies that attempts to ape the noir sort of look of the '40s without and and succeeds without feeling too much like an exercise in style. And I would say this does it better. But oh, right. that, that makes me want to see it more now. Yeah, it's, it's I just kept hearing it was pretty brutal. And I mean, I never. It's really not empty. The it's not empty, and it's and it's and uh, I mean, yeah, the characters are interesting. Like when I think about it, and I think about the things I like about it, I think about the characters, and I think about the story. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. And I, I mean, and I do like the art design, and I like how all of the money was sort of devoted. You know, it had like a sixty million dollar budget, and there was he has a great. I'm gonna put this up on the on the show page as well. Um, uh, recently had a great interview with um, Beeks from uh, Ain't It Cool News um, where it's like he talked about how the movie was like $60 million and every penny of it went to the art department and it really you really do get a sense of a bombed out Europe about uh, just uh, like they really do create these locations uh, um, that are very realistic and impressive and you know real looking um and it's mm-hmm. not just and it's not just an accomplishment in its own right. It's an actual good, you know. It actually adds to the feelings of the movie and adds to the themes of the movie and the way the characters are. Definitely, I'll lend you the good German. Yeah, it's I. It's ballsy too that it's in black and white. Obviously, it has to be. If yeah. the movie wasn't in black and white, it just wouldn't. It wouldn't really work. Um, and that kind of brings up one overall thing about Soderbergh is. Yeah, he did Ocean's Eleven, and yeah, he won Best Director for Traffic, and he's been nominated this and that. I'm still um, kind of fascinated that sort of the, the the studio 
world or whatever will kind of let him do whatever he wants. Like I'm, I'm surprised that the good German really exists. Even. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I don't know all the ins and outs. I know he's like, he works in and out of the studio and he had like a five picture deal with somebody where he just kind of get him out of the way. I don't really know all the ins and outs, but even with all that, it's like, I'm just surprised that something like The Good German was out there. Not And it didn't just play at the local rep cinema. Yeah. Like it was in the mall. It was a wide release. Okay. <sighs> he got a movie out in the mall that is in standard ratio that didn't take up the whole screen. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> that's insane to me that he accomplished that. That's And that's... Oh, and that's very admirable. Um, Kudos, man. And you Kudos. can't even just... Ocean's Eleven, it, it's very close to my favorite... Soderbergh movie just because, like I said, like it is the number one personification of the value of movie stars, and I love all the characters, and I love the pacing, and again, his ability to portray multiple things happening at once, and the script is great. I love that movie. You want, I do too. I um, you want to talk about the limey? Yeah, it's. <laughs> Uh, at the same time, I'm almost wondering: Should we just save it for the part two because I love it so much? You want you, are, you, you want to save that as I the, think I do. one of the main movies? I think I do. It'd be, it'd be a great one. Yeah, yeah. Like main... I have a lot to say about it that I kind of don't want to say like really quickly. I think it's we're hitting it... the two and a half hour mark oh, okay. at this point. Yeah, yeah, which yeah. is you know not not it doesn't you know it's okay, but right. um, <laughs> let's briefly talk about Schizopolis because I think that's okay. a lot. It's just a fun movie. I, I'm I I like. Everything about it, I like the playfulness of it. It almost feels to me like if Richard Lester directed True Stories or something and it had this absurd, surrealist quality to it where yeah. at the same time, <laughs> it's an experiment that has its charms and at times I'm like, wow, what what was the point of that other than just to be quirky and weird? Um, I mean, it's an exercise in style and... I think I, it's just him sort of playing and, with the filmmaking conventions. And what I want to say about that is um, there's a lot of movies that I will always detract for, oh, you're just doing that to be quirky and weird. But Schizopolis gets gets away with it because it's so fucking personal. And you can tell <laughs> that that he's not trying to pander to anyone. He's not trying to be cute. Right. He, it is literally just the things that came out of his brain. Uh and it's just like, this is coming out of my brain, so I'm going to put it in the movie because I've never seen a movie made where whatever comes out of someone's... Let's, yeah, let's mishmash like, Scientology with uh, miscommunication and how we interact. And, and the, uh, the hollowness of... Like, you can tell that he sat down to write, okay, so we need a scene where he comes home to dinner. And it's like, oh, these scenes are always so boring. No one cares about them. They don't do anything. So then he just wrote down... Ah, oh, pretend excited greet or <laughs> uh, false reaction indicating hunger and excite and excitement. Yeah, exactly. Like you, like you can, you really, literally see it on the screen that he's doing that because that's just the first thing he thought of, and that he is taking the piss out of those kinds of scenes. And it's yeah. actually I haven't seen it uh, in forever, but it's so good. It's really funny. It's one of those examples of. Like, this is the movie that came out right before Out of Sight. Um, so Universal Pictures released this, and it's like, when they were putting together Out of Sight, the studio sat, got, sat around and said, who should we get to direct this? And somebody said, how about the guy that did Schizopolis? It's, that's the kind of thing that... <laughs> I'm sure they pitched this. It's baffling. They pitched, I'm sure they pitched this about the guy who did Sex, Lies, and Videotape. 
Um, yes, but, probably. But between Sex Lies and Videotape and Out of Sight, like he did all this really weird, like Kafka and King of the Hill and, yeah. and Schizopolis. Um, it's it's just kind of weird that they let him go on to do Out of Sight, and obviously we're so glad they did. But yeah, yeah, Schizopolis feels like a I don't know, kind of a weird mishmash, a little bit of Monty Python in yeah. there. Like I love the there's it's weird. There's in the middle of the movie. Um, the the press conference with the guy who says racehorses never have and never will urinated any more than any other type of horse, <laughs> and like just bits like that that are just so random and hilarious. I love the delivery of oh no, I'm having an affair with my wife. <laughs> like just there's just those lines alone. Just yeah, I am always I'm always almost disappointed he didn't act more. Like yeah, even he's got in, a good even presence. If even if it's in other people's movies, and might I say, Steven Soderbergh, one of the more handsome directors. <laughs> I mean, we've covered a lot of directors uh, on this show. Not many of them are any good looking. Thumbs up uh, for I the think, bald man. I think Steve Soderbergh. He looks a lot like that one guy from UCB, uh, Matt. I think Matt Belner, but I'm, I'm Matt Belner. Oh yeah, I could see that. Maybe with a little Woody Harrelson. Yeah, but he's yeah. He's a good actor, and I'm wondering why not even in other movies has he acted. You know, you think of all the different people who he's friends with in Hollywood and stuff. No one ever, even he, even the part where he he had to fill in for someone else on Full Frontal, like he blurred out his face. Maybe he should have played uh, Aaron Brockovich. Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. We'll talk about Aaron Brockovich (laughs) maybe the next time. I I fucking hate that movie. Uh, Ouch. So think, that brings up a good question: yeah. Is that what's the one Soderbergh movie, or not the one, but what's the most hated Soderbergh film? Um, most hated is probably Ocean's Eleven or Thirteen, or not. I'm sorry, whoa, Ocean's, whoa, whoa. Tw- Ocean's Twelve or Thirteen. Yeah. Um, I've seen some people. The people who like Ocean's Twelve hate Thirteen, and the people who say, "Oh, Thirteen is finally is at least a return to form," hate Twelve. But I think one of those is probably the most. I I mostly hate Aaron Brockovich because. I barely see any of Soderbergh in it, and I think it's very pandering. Um, I would agree with that it's pandering. Mm-hmm. And it, I haven't seen that for years. It's, it's worth a rewatch. It is. It's. It's like the worst casting. Uh, I, again, I don't want to get into it, but I mean, you. Yeah. I've, I've never liked Julia Roberts. They. Li- I like Julia. I like Julia Roberts. That's the thing. But yeah. I mean, they cast Aaron Eckhart as a rough around the edges biker. Like that's like even in an Andy Kaufman, <laughs> like not an Andy, Kaufman, a Charlie Kaufman movie about Hollywood bullshit. They would not do that Hollywood bullshit in it. <laughs> like where they give uh, Aaron Eckhart like a ridiculous like Civil War mustache and put a bandana on him and say he's a biker. Like that's that's what Sam Elliott's for. What the fuck? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> anyway, um, we could talk Oceans. forever about Soderbergh, which is. Why we're going to have a second episode, as we mentioned. Yeah, I mean, if he you know, has two movies coming out next Haywire. year, we'll, we'll have more to talk about. Absolutely. Oh, I'm so excited for yeah. Haywire. Yeah. And I'm and just last word, I'm with you. I think Ocean's 12 is a piece of shit. I hate that movie. I, yeah, I don't, I'm not a fan. Well, my, my only defense of it is that um, what I love about Ocean's 11 is that it's a bunch of charming, handsome people being charming and handsome. And Ocean's 12 continues that. Uh, and that it's also very silly and weird, and I like that. It's definitely too self-aware, and it's yeah. definitely and the the plot definitely doesn't go anywhere, and the villain's horrible. But the heist sucks. The heist, but <laughs> again, I never cared about the heist. I just like the I characters. I like the heist in the first one, though. No, I, I mean, like the well heist fine, but that's not that's not my favorite part. I know. Um, it's Ocean's, not my favorite thir- part, Ocean's but... thirteen, on the other hand, makes a weird choice where everyone's very somber. 
like they're they're trying to give a gravitas to an oceans movie where it's like God, saw, I don't remember that. Yeah, Saw is like very sick because he's been ripped off and he's dying. Well, we got to get revenge, and like there's not a lot of scenes of them paddling around and having fun. Like everything is a real heaviness behind it. Which is, is Brad Pitt still mm-hmm. eating? No, and he's not eating that one. Oh no! Yeah, I know. <laughs> Something's wrong. And it's, it just seems like the absolute worst choice you can make. And you know, even Al Pacino kind of phones it in. I don't. Ocean's Thirteen is and Aaron Brockovich are my least my least favorite. But um, speaking of least favorite, why don't we go ahead around and say oh, yeah. our top three most favorite? Yeah, why not? Jeez, uh oh. Um, I can go first. If yeah, you want. <laughs> Jim, you, you go, go first. So I think about it. Uh, number one, uh, after a, a rewatch, only the second time I've seen it. Number one is the Limey. Oh, wow. Sure. Uh, number two, I'm going to go with Out of Sight, and number three, Sex, Lies, and Videotape. Okay, I'm going to have to say number one, Sex, Lies, and Videotape. Um, number two, Ocean's Eleven. Hmm. And number three is Schizopolis. Cool. Um, okay. Uh, Jesus. Um, number one, probably Out of Sight. Uh, number two, the limey, and number three actually would probably be a tie. Just because I can cheat, that's uh, fine. would be a tie kind of between Ocean's Eleven and Solaris because they're Ooh. such different films, but fucking love them both. Yeah, yeah I, I'm thinking the limey and Solaris would be the two I'd like to. I'd like for to do that two. because I'd like a reason to finally sit down and finish. Tarkovsky's Solaris, which I've never done. I've, I've attempted it five, count them, five times. Five times. Five times I've sat down with Tarkovsky's Solaris and like gotten 45 minutes into it before I, I, I tapped out. It took me a long time to get through 2001. Yeah. Yeah. I well, I'm, I'm and I'm I'm not saying anything I love about, it. I'm not saying anything about Solaris. I'm saying I it's my deficiency. But so it's yeah, all good. Next time I think yeah we'll do the Limey and Solaris. Yeah, that'll be fun. I'm I'm looking. That forward will be to super that. cool. I'll be super interested to listen to that one. Yeah, yeah definitely. For sure. Thanks, um, Andrew, again for being on the show. It was great having you on, and thanks for having me on for the uh, Movie Club podcast. And I'm looking forward to defending Southland Tales. <laughs> yeah. Oh, really? Okay. Well, yeah. I'm looking forward to a rewatch to see if I, because I don't know. I'm thinking on rewatch, I may defend it, but. Oh, okay. Cool. I don't know. That was, that was a harsh watch the first time. Should be fun. Um, and I do want to let everyone know, um, we have a Facebook group now. Oh, we do? Yeah. You search Director's Club Podcast on Facebook, you'll get our Facebook group. Or you can just go to the website and. I'd like it. Yeah. And the, like link, the link's on the website as well? Yeah. All right. Definitely. Um, so yeah, go ahead, do that. Get updates. We talk to you. Uh, <laughs> that's exciting, isn't it? Ooh, talk to the host of Directors Club. Hold me while I swoon. Become um, Patrick's friend so you can have 300 comments. Oh, that's right. I recently, uh, did a, I recently did a comment about how cool the guns in the fifth element are, that they have that whole scene that Gary Oldman does that has no ramifications at all in the plot. And it ended up having 350 comments about how great fifth element is. Wow. uh, We love Fifth Element. Um, So, uh, yeah, go ahead. Crazy. Check us out on Facebook. And check out uh, all of Andrew's uh, work at row3.com. And what's your Twitter, Andrew? Is it just Andrew James? Andrew underscore James. Cool. And anything else going on that you want to talk about, plug, other than Row 3? Uh, I don't have anything. We're going to be doing our Cinecast this week. Great. uh, Kurt and I, and it's going to be pretty. It will... 
do a little melancholia probably as well, but also um, Muppets. He has seen Hugo and uh, The Descendants we're going to talk about, oh, speaking of George Clooney. Excellent. So. I need to check that out soon for sure. It's good. Cool. Very good. Well, uh, on the next uh, Directors Club podcast should be another interesting episode for us. Because oh, we're, yeah. We're, um, I believe uh, Kurt once again will be joining us to talk about a very divisive filmmaker Hal Hartley. Some love him, some hate him, and I happen to love at least three or four of his movies, and Patrick kind I've, of despises I've, the I've, one movie I I've, love. I've seen Trust, which and I love. I don't understand what is good about it at all, but we'll save that for next episode. Yeah, definitely. Should be fun. Join us then <laughs> in a couple weeks. Yeah, in the meantime, though, you want to check us out, directorsclubpodcast.com. Email us at directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com. And you can check me out on Twitter. I'm at Patrick Rapole. I'm at Instant Jim. All right, so until next time. This is Director's Club Podcast. Hello. Wow, I just completely lost the inability to talk. You had a brain skid just there, you know? I know, that was weird. I thought I was going to have a stroke. That was weird. I was, I was nervous, too, I was that like, you were going to have a stroke. Until uh, next time, uh, we'll be seeing you. Cool. Thanks. Our dreams. See you later. Bye-bye. We okay. all took a deep breath at the yeah. same time. Yeah. <laughs> all right, here we go. Lion face. Lion face. It's like we're launching a spaceship in orbit. We're just starting the podcast. All right. Mm-hmm. Steven Soderbergh will release two movies to critical acclaim. In the year... No. Okay. <laughs>